0: Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. I've been watching some tape of you. who have seen Joy read. <laughs> she gave me some notes. <laughs> now, Chris, we called Ibram Kendi. And Ibram <laughs> Kendi, he told me he is not a critical race. There's why you lying. <laughs> you out here lying. <laughs> now, Chris, I'm not going to let you talk. This is my show.
1: We know of new methods of attack.
0: The fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. Michael Moynihan of Vice News is blowing vape smoke. Matt Welsh of Reason Magazine is also around on the ha- on the line. Um, there was a bit of a, yeah. a jitter in the thing there. It's, um, are, are we all still together? We are. We are. Uh, right, I'm delighted to be here, here with you. I, I still do various things yeah. at Freethink, um, and dude, there's so many things happening today. So oh, many what things that
1: happened today.
0: Oh my God! Bill Cosby uh, died, and Donald Rumsfeld well, got out of jail yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of kind of the opposite <laughs> there. Kind of the opposite <laughs> there. Donald Rumsfeld <laughs> dead. I don't know, man. I just read Bill Team Cosby. Vogue. I don't know what yeah. happened. Bill Cosby vindicated <laughs> <laughs> on a technicality of sorts. Vin Diesel cosmicated.
2: <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff. A lot of something stuff happened man. to Vin Diesel. No. Oh. <laughs> uh, Chris Rufo was given tenure. It was a nine to four vote. Yes, uh but Chris he was. Ruffo was finally given <laughs> tenure. Yeah. In the,
1: the the nine the four people who voted against were all members of his family, which I oh. thought it, was kind of weird. Evergreen it was like extended
2: uh, Evergreen College. Uh, evergreen State. <laughs> evergreen <laughs> State. Yeah. I
0: don't think that's true. Uh, but Nicole Hannah Jones. Yeah um, beleaguered, beleaguered yeah. Uh, academic Times. who's who's strived to make something of herself for years. I know finally finds herself with a job, which is yes. great. And it's a tenure job, which they were trying to deny to her because they are yes. monstrous racist. And they fought a noble battle, and she was able to secure tenure. So that My happened God. today as well.
1: Did you get any lifetime appointments today, Camille? Or, no, I did or, not. Or
0: is there just injustice all around you? <laughs> I did not. No, I have been <laughs> celebrated today, and I do, feel, I do feel good. I do feel recognized, and I do feel seen. Um, and I also, I also want to acknowledge our guests because we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff. I imagine we're going to talk about Biden um, and the, the strikes in Syria. Um, I imagine we may talk about some infrastructure stuff. There's all kinds of stuff happening with fund the Police nationally um, and some various things related to rising crime rates. The New York mayoral race is in a weird place right now. There's so much going on. But before we get to those things – Stacey um, Abrams won it, I think.
2: Yes, she's
0: refusing to <laughs> <laughs> acknowledge the she She's refusing hasn't to concede. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she thinks
1: she's won, but Eric Adams is like, no, I don't even think you were. On the ballot, I don't know. <laughs> They're but
3: going before... to appoint Trump the mayor of New York at some point just to... <laughs> in, August. Yeah, in August.
0: Well, it's appropriate. It's appropriate. He'll be appointed. You guys to many didn't see the latest Q
3: drop there. <laughs> Trump <laughs> will be the New York mayor before the end of this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, the
0: Well, that voice that you're hearing um, is Chris Rufo, who is our guest for this dispatch. We we promised it a couple of weeks ago. It's finally finally happening today. The notorious Chris Rufo, I should say, hero to some, villain to many. He is a former former (laughs) filmmaker turned journalist. I think it's it's fair to say that you're a a political pugilist. You have described yourself as a brawler in different contexts. The New York Times called you what a clever propagandist. Oh my (laughs) god! Well, at least you got the clever. That
1: sounds like a compliment.
0: Yeah, all propaganda isn't bad. Yeah, yeah, clever propagandist. Yeah. Um, Chris, thank you for, for hanging out with us today. I appreciate it. I know you've got a very busy dance card these days and you're not, you're not hanging out with Joy Reid this week the way you were last week when you were (laughs) supposed to be with us.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my, uh, see how well that you worked know, out but for I have you. to upgrade to you guys. You know, Joy Reid exactly. was just merely the prelude to this appearance here tonight.
1: Yeah, yes. that's good, uh, Camille. We should do a thing where we don't let him speak once during this podcast. Uh-huh. This is my show. We just, Chris. Every
3: time, yeah, just
0: <laughs> <laughs> mute him. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 don't say anything. I see your mouth moving. Funny, It's That's true. Um, it's really
3: an amazing thing, though. The the Joy Reid appearance. You know, it was a thirteen minute segment. I got off the you know, the the Skype session. And I said, oh, what a waste. I mean, she must have talked for 10 minutes out of 13. I tried to get in my points. I tried to, you know, sneak in a little. No, that's not right here and there. Um, but it really does show that uh, in order to win a debate, you don't even actually have to say anything. The other person can just bury him or herself. Um, so I, I think that's what happened last week.
0: Well, she did say she's not going to let you lie. And if you can't talk, you can't have an opportunity to lie. I mean, I suppose that is true. You also can't tell the truth, (laughs) but
3: whatever. At one point she said, she said, um, critical race theory is not taught in K through 12 schools. And I said, Yes, it is. I'll give you three examples. And she said, no, you won't.
1: <laughs> no, it <is>. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. There you go. Un, un, yeah. Unavailable. Yeah. Well, <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm delighted yeah. that you could join us because I, I want to talk about a couple of different things. I mean, first and foremost, I think Chris and I are, are kind of friends. I think we probably only talked two or three times, but we have had many interactions online in different contexts. And I have read your work with Benefit chris has made a name for himself as someone who i think it's fair to use the word crusade and i don't mean that in any sort of derogatory way but who crusades against what what we'll call critical race theory and we can get into definitions in a little bit um but chris and i i think and probably with the rest of the gentlemen on the podcast are broadly aligned in that we are skeptical of a lot of the things that fly under the banner of critical race theory in different contexts, um, certainly in places of employment where people have encountered like diversity, equity, and inclusion training that has become very divisive um, amongst employees. And one employer where diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff has seemed to really crop up and create a lot of problems um, is in education, both higher education, but in particular in K-12. through Along with that, we've seen these really intense curriculum uh, culture wars start to play out. Now, these political battles, and I think the beginning of these battles corresponds to the, the racial reckoning that's been going on, this hyper concern and focus on race and issues related to it. And it's led to some excesses on the part of activist school boards and activist teachers who've created a lot of consternation for parents. And Chris is one of the people who I think is probably most responsible for unearthing a lot of the most bizarre, in some instances, and frightening, in other instances, stories about the things that are happening in classrooms. But the reason you've become notorious, Chris, in a place where you and I, and I think the guys also have some disagreements, is with respect to the broader kind of political campaign that you are really at, at the forefront of to achieve particular kind of legislative aims, with respect to confronting crit- critical race theory, i.e. a lot of these bills to ban critical race theory in different contexts. And we can get into some specifics, but I do think it's worthwhile to, to just spend a little bit of time talking about that specific context and how you found yourself kind of going from filmmaker to someone who is covering this stuff and obtaining these emails, this leaked information from places as diverse as the Loudoun County School Board and Disney. What the hell is going on here? How did you end up here and why do so many people hate you? Also, why are you racist? Yeah. Well, <laughs> why are you racist? I'm going to take those in
3: chronological order. I'm going to start with the beginning. When did you uh,
0: learn to hate black people and fear the truth about history? I'm not going to let you answer. Yeah.
3: No, why do stop, you wanna, stop you, fucking ban spirit history? murdering
0: yeah. Camille right now?
3: Yeah. Uh, this podcast is is spirit murdering me now. So, it 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 is actually an interesting story. And it, it starts really because I was reporting on and doing a lot of research work and policy work on homelessness and looking at West Coast cities, looking at Seattle, where kind of the region that I'm from, looking at Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And as you dig into municipal politics in the most progressive cities in the country, you uncover a kind of hidden ideology that guides activists and policymakers and And voters. And so I had kind of unlocked some of these secret ideologies related to homelessness, but also related to criminal justice and to policing. And a lot of my reporting in Seattle, uh, you know, garnered a lot of attention, a lot of some negative attention, given the kind of political difference between me and the kind of average Seattle activist. But I had made enough, enough of a splash or made enough contacts that People started sending me leaks. So I'd get leaks from Seattle Police Department. I'd get leaks from the Seattle, de- kind of King County Department of Corrections. I'd get leaks from municipal judges. And someone finally sent me a leak from the Seattle's Office of Civil Rights. Um, and they said, Hey, you need to take a look at this training program that they're requiring for all new city employees. It's called interrupting whiteness and internalized white supremacy. And, so I filed a FOIA request. I forgot about it. I got, I think, emailed like those CD-ROM disks uh, from back in the day. I had to actually call a friend to say, hey, man, I need a, like a CD-ROM drive. I, I don't know how to access the, the PDFs on this thing. And what I found in that document, that set of documents, was really the whole world of DEI, the whole world of of, kind of uh, racial justice curricula, the whole world of applied critical race theory. And it all started there, and it was something that wasn't in my beat, but I I, I, I posted it. I think I tweeted it at first, and it just exploded. Uh, the story. And this is
2: sorry. This is the, uh, around when roughly.
3: I think it was exact, almost exactly a year ago in wow. June or just July of 2020. Okay. And then uh, something amazing. First of all, it was, it was it was pretty cool. It's like oh wow, this story that I did that I is not really my beat. It's not something I'm really focused on. It's just exploded. And it was on social media. It was all over the kind of right-wing press. It, you know, did uh, Fox News. But then something happened that was really made this different than just a one-off story that is kind of a human interest. I started getting other people emailing me, contacting me. I set up an anonymous tip box through Proton Mail. And at first, it was maybe 10 or 20 a day. Then it was 100, 200 a day. And now I'm getting some days like 500 emails. From people all over the country in all different contexts saying the story that you broke on Seattle public schools or San Diego public schools or Philadelphia public schools, it's happening in my local district too. And it just opened the floodgates to this world where uh, you see the ideology through the, the, the expression of documents in that are codified in, in predominantly public institutions and it really just set me off on this journey, on this quest, on this wild goose chase of trying to break all of these stories and uh, trying to sift through the documents, trying to find the most kind of salacious and exciting stories, and then just pumping them out there week after week after week to build this overarching narrative. Now,
2: these uh, things are... Uh Internal documents, uh, guidance, are they creating policy? Are they becoming are they uh, becoming applied to actual things that affect lives? Or is it more like a training seminar that someone has to sit through, uh, like for an implicit bias type of seminar? Can you characterize what you were finding, especially in that first flush?
3: Yeah. So the first set of stories were about, you know, really focused on the federal government. I thought that's where there could be the most uh, impact, the most uh, interest, the most uh, kind of drama. And it was stuff like the Sandia National Laboratories, which designs America's nuclear arsenal. I mean, a very serious place, um, forcing white male executives to attend a three-day uh, white privilege re-education camp, um, you know, actually taking them, putting them in a resort, segregated by race, segregated by sex, and then forcing them through a series of exercises where they were told to deconstruct their white male heterosexual privilege, uh, kind of digest, and then repeat a series of white male privilege statements. Um, And then at the end, uh, even write these, these fill out this worksheet that were like letters of apology, uh, taking responsibility for their privilege, promising to do better, um, becoming a better, you know, white male ally. And you see in these training documents um, uh, everything from, you know, the, the the whiteboards that they photographed. They're saying, you know, they're asking, what does it mean to be a white male? What are some of the connotations? What is it analogous to? Well, being a white male is analogous to being a KKK member or a mass shooter or a white supremacist or, you know, all of these horrific things that are such a tiny fraction, uh, mathematically, uh, and and really in many ways not limited uh, in, in some cases rather not limited to being a white male, and then raising them to the level of this is really the essence of white maleness, um, and you can sense from the documents and then from the interviews that I did even in those very early statements that this isn't your, you know, your grandpa's racial sensitivity seminar from 1981. Um, this is something that is deeply ideological and political, and is actually reshaping the workforce, reshaping these institutions in ways that touch uh, on, on, on fundamental values. And I think that's why these stories are so powerful.
1: What prevents when you say that these are, you know, a government laboratory and you have a bunch of people that are, you know, older white male executives, I imagine they've been around for a while and have a certain measure of power within the institution to not say, for lack of a better phrase, go fuck yourself. Because if something like that came up and I was working for the government, it's precisely what I would say. And I would be licking my lips at the possibility of a lawsuit because I think you probably have, you know, pretty good. Uh, standing here to fight this stuff. And I'm sure there's a number of lawyers that would love to take a case like this pro bono. Why are people actually sitting through this stuff rather than actually fighting back? And they're contacting you rather than going through the channels internally and saying, hey, this stuff is kind of crazy.
3: A couple of reasons. I, I think, you know, first and probably foremost is that there is a certain amount of fear uh, if I'm being... Critical, maybe a certain amount of cowardice,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and you have people that are living in real life situations. So let's say you're 54 years old, you've been working at the federal laboratory for you know 23 years, you're seven years away from retirement with full benefits, full pension. You're and you have you know let's say a couple kids and dependents. Maybe you have a, a adult son that lives at home. Uh, you're not going to rock the boat on these issues because you don't want to lose your pension, you don't want to lose your job, you're worried about getting hired somewhere else. There's a lot of those practical concerns. I talked to a lot of people, especially in middle age, where they just said, I'm scared to lose my job. I'm scared I can never get hired anymore. There's a a secondary fear that is something like, uh, I don't want to be the one person who speaks out. I don't know if other of my colleagues support me. I don't want to be targeted and labeled as a racist or an enabler or a white supremacist or um or 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 some other epithet. And then I think third and 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 also very importantly is that the institutional dynamics uh in a lot of these places, these beliefs are very strong. Uh they're adopted by the top executives, so people in the C-suite, uh, and they're pushed through these channels and departments and information sessions uh, to the point where it's very clear that this is the company culture. This is the mandated set of beliefs. You will comply or you will be uh, not getting a promotion, not getting a raise, maybe not continue your employment here. And a, you know, I talked to a lot of people who said, yeah, I sent an email citing evidence, you know, why this is maybe not the best thing, trying to be very diplomatic. And the message in all cases is shut up. There's no room for debate. This is policy. This is dogma. This is what we do here. Um, And you have
1: emails from from people in, you know, government positions who say, do not, you know, rock the boat. Do not respond to this in a negative way. Do not challenge these concepts because you will be punished or there are people who have been punished and have come to you about these things. Or is it just kind of a... You know, weird atmosphere that people don't want to speak out. But after the training is done, it kind of dissipates. Have there been people that you have talked to who have actually been punished or fired or, you know, demoted or something or, or, you know, lack of a, of a, um, a promotion?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of people that have been pushed out, a lot of people that are on the verge of being pushed out, uh, even, you know, some folks in the treasury department. Uh, where they're running these training programs, a kind of constant daily stream of emails and seminars and webinars and communications and, and projects and resources. Every day they're getting hammered with this stuff. And one of these employees described it as essentially a purge. They're taking anyone with conservative or Christian or traditional beliefs. Um, they're, they're smoking them out through these programs. And then they're basically, uh, Creating an office culture and environment and policy and then kind of informal activities to push these people out. And that's something I hear a lot, especially from teachers, especially from middle age and maybe a, a bit older teachers. You know, they understand wh- where the where the wind is blowing. They understand that if they don't comply with this, if they don't, you know, kind of agree verbally, um, they're going to get pushed out. Uh, that's just the bottom line.
0: I want to I see if we can draw maybe a distinction between kind of the private and public settings and then specifically what's happening in the schools. Because when it comes to these manifestations of you know crazy DEI stuff in a private setting, like your project, Chris, seems to be to expose these things, to report on them, condemn them, I'd say, but also to ridicule them. Like that's the approach. And it doesn't seem like there's necessarily kind of a political agenda where that's concerned. But in the context of the federal government, where you have diversity, equity, and inclusion training happening, and we can talk about the executive order that the Trump administration enacted, which the Biden administration quickly reversed when they took office, um, and your role, I think, in inspiring that action, it seems. Um, And then the specific... Project that you have, where the schools are concerned, and the pivot from not merely exposing these things, but to passing legislation to curb excesses. And I have a tendency to load up a bunch of questions. I hope that's okay.
3: No, that's <laughs> I know good. Yeah, yeah, no, that, I, I never know. I, no, I, can, I, can, I can take those. So I, I think there's really there are three key differences between private sector corporations programming. And then public sector, especially K through 12 education. Um, you know, first of all, is private companies are private companies. They're participating in free enterprise. They're not funded by uh, tax dollars, uh, at least not directly funded by tax dollars. That makes them quite different. The second is that private companies, you know, in the United States, a Fortune 500 company doesn't employ uh, children. There's uh, child labor laws. Uh, and, and, and so you're over 18, you're a legal adult, you're choosing. To work at a private company, so there's again a higher barrier. Uh, And then third, these ideologies are just much less deeply entrenched in private companies. Private companies adopt them because it looks good. It's a form of insure. It's a form of like riot insurance uh, that that companies signal they hire the consultants. They do these programs uh, to not really get like sometimes a physical, but often a metaphorical. Kind of campaign of intimidation or destruction against them. So in a way, the kind of expose shame, uh, and, and rally public sentiment in order to give these corporate leaders an an out, an exit, a kind of graceful exit. It works. Like, for example, I did, um, like, you know, woke Mickey Mouse. I did a story about Disney's internal program. I got a, a trove of all of Disney's internal diversity and inclusion documents. I mean, some of which were just absolutely just absurd i mean telling disney employees that they should defund the police decolonize their bookshelves uh you know opposing equality uh and and, and in favor of equality of outcomes i mean really kind of grade school level idiocy decolonize their
1: bookshelves like their bookshelves at home
0: yeah
3: yes decolonize their bookshelves so basically take oh. european and white authors uh, and 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 burn those books you know you have to decolonize them in favor of indigenous and bipoc authors
2: Dude, Moynihan, um, yeah. we're going to, the denazification of your bookshelf is going to require some Tarantino <laughs> flamethrowers, bro. That, wow. Total.
1: That's just. So, can you I, have bad, uh, ugly books that you want to cite so you can argue against them or do you have to burn, burn those too? Good. I guess you just kind of feel that they're that, bad that, so you don't actually have to read them. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. dear God.
3: So, cool. exactly. I mean, these are easily mockable and, and, and the result from my reporting and, you know, we did a whole media cycle on it and, um, and the result was that Disney at first tried to defend themselves. They actually did something amazing. They put out a press release where they said, you know, Disney is not racist. Um, we can't possibly be, be racist because we made Black Panther, um, which is like and
1: Song of the South, which is
3: like, <laughs> which is like the black friend defense. Uh, but Don't like, we made a movie Song uh, of the South, Michael Moynihan. Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. So they I tried that, that
3: maneuver very briefly. Um, that was rapidly just mocked by everybody and then they ended up actually just nuking their entire anti-racism training program from their internal website. Oh wow. Um, wow. So, you know, that's a that's a that's a victory. That's a one, you know, uh you know, anti-CRT people one, Disney zero. Um so that can, can I be ask effective. something quickly? Um, uh,
0: did you And and I don't know if you can say so. Did you obtain that from a Disney insider?
3: That's correct. Yeah, I actually obtained it from two different Disney insiders, Mm. uh, you know, within Walt Disney Corporation or Walt Disney Company,
0: independent of one another.
3: Independent. Yeah, it's actually funny. Um, And at first, you know, you have to be very careful with this kind of reporting because, you know, you get two emails from two different people. Is this some kind of setup? Is this some kind of hoax or scam? Um, And so I do. I mean, a a, a huge, a, a huge effort to authenticate verify confirm identities confirm authenticity but the the difference though and i think this is really important and i think this is where we probably have some disagreement um is that public institutions are quite different um you know if disney wants to do woke programming we don't disagree on that (laughs) (laughs) whatever fine you know for the record i agree they're different but but
0: scumbag see this is why we don't let you talk when you start talking you start <laughs> lying. Oh, you lying. <laughs>
3: get up here lying chris Rufo. so we're gonna have to we're gonna go into some dangerous territory critical race theory is actually taught in k-12 through schools i've reported on this a lot but but schools are different <laughs> schools are funded by taxpayers so taxpayers get to decide what they want to have happen with their money Um uh, schools have uh, a captive audience i mean In a lot of places, uh, you are required to attend school. It's compulsory. And especially if you don't have a lot of money, uh, you know, for, which is the case for a large number of Americans, it's hard to move and you're, you're stuck in a neighborhood kind of zoned school system. So there are children, again, minors. There's a duty to protect these people because they're minors and they're also in an environment of being compelled to participate in a government institution. And then third, very important point is that the ideology of critical race theory, diversity and inclusion, whatever you want to call it, is deeply entrenched in these public bureaucracies for a couple reasons: one because they're public bureaucracies they don't have to actually meet a market need they don 't actually have to innovate they don't have to demonstrate uh kind of ability to meet um, kind of profit targets and then so you have this this huge bureaucracy that's built up of these useless departments uh, that put out you know, flashy PowerPoints and, and, and inflammatory, you know, Zoom meetings. Um, and they employ m- many kind of, uh you know, uh, gender studies, recent graduates from master's programs. Um, and then it's just this permanent employment program for political activists. And, in, and that's what it is. You have mm. publicly funded political activists embedded in K through 12 schools, and then pushing this ideology and activism onto children who are compelled to be there, often using the most outrageous political concepts. And to me, that is wrong. And to me, that is something that has to be stopped.
1: Chris, just a a point of clarification here, because I've read this and, you know, I don't really trust everything that I've read about you because a lot of it is um, quite hostile and obviously quite partisan, um, we were saying before we started that actually the best one was a piece in the New Yorker by Benjamin Wallace Wells who gave you, a, a, I think, a fair hearing. Uh, and it might have been in that piece that said that you were involved in or advising some of these bills that, you know, there are dozens of them now that are being passed in various states or being debated in various states. Just before we go forward, what is your level of involvement? Are you just, you know, the happy culture warrior that is providing ammunition for everyone? Or are you kind of in communication with people who are actually formulating these uh, bits of of uh, you know these amendments that, you know, for instance, I just uh, I was at the the school board hearing in Florida a couple weeks ago. Like, how much uh, involvement do you have on like the sort of on the ground stuff?
3: Yeah, it's um, I'm heavily involved. So it's uh, I- I'm really involved with each piece of this campaign. You know, from actually really framing this issue as critical race theory, bringing that term to to prominence. Um, doing the, the investigative reporting to actually show what's happening through documented uh, original reporting. And then as that has shifted into, I mean, first, you know, President Trump picked up my, my reporting, picked up my advocacy, uh, passed an executive order. But now that it's kind of spun out to state legislators uh, and also to federal legislators and the Senate and the House. I'm heavily involved with all of them. So I advised uh, uh you know US senators, I advised House Republicans on on bills they're doing. I've advised probably in some capacity more than a dozen state legislatures. Um and I've even created a briefing book for school board members, local candidates and 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 you know high level federal uh elected officials how to talk about this issue how to frame this issue, what language to use to be persuasive. And it's been pretty cool. You see people like Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis lifting almost verbatim language from some of the memos that I've written, and then using that to speak about this issue in a way that I think is very compelling. And that public opinion polling, so survey data, shows us is a 20-point winner. I mean, a large majority of Americans think that critical race theory is, quote, bad for America, including 72% of independents. So if you're a politician, you're looking at something that is a 58-38 issue with 72% of support from independents. This is just a a brute force instrument with which to beat your political opponents over the head with. Um, And listen, this is democracy. This is politics. Uh, I, I don't want to just be right. I want to change how the country works. I want to change how yeah. schools operate. I want to be uh, effective. I want to deliver actual policy outcomes.
1: So a quick follow-up on that. Um, you spoke at the beginning of our conversation, and I've, I've heard you speak about this in the past, about yourself as a reporter. And as you were describing it to me, I mean, you were doing the things that reporters do. You know, you were getting documents, you were framing them, you were writing them, you were promoting them, et cetera. And now when you know, I ask you that question and I hear that you're you know, uh, people are lifting your language directly. You're talking to to uh, legislators and kind of helping shape policy. Why should I trust you as a reporter?
4: <laughs>
1: considering that, you know, what you're doing is activism and what you're con- a- accusing other people of doing is activism too. So you're doing the same thing, but from a different angle. So can I actually trust you as a reporter in the sense that if you find something that fall, you know, is not true, or you see, you know, a bill that is written that you think is, you know, this is a little too far. It actually, this actually does threaten academic freedom, et cetera. That you will speak out against that, or does that, you know, run up against your stated goal of actually, you know, scaring the hell out of Americans with the critical race theory and getting this stuff uh, kind of overturned?
3: Yeah. So a couple things. I think that you know, I mean, the New York Times reporters and the Washington Post reporters. Um, are are activists that claim to be kind of objective and neutral reporters. Uh, I'm very, the reason you should trust me is I'm actually very honest about it. I use journalistic techniques to produce stories. I'm also an activist with an agenda and political goals. Um, I'm very transparent about it. So the difference between me and a New York Times reporter is that they're lying and obfuscating and hiding their intentions while I'm very clearly stating my intentions with, with high levels of transparency and honesty. The other reason you should trust my reporting is that I do two things. One is these are all source document reporting reports. So I actually post not only the kind of, uh, most salacious details, but I also in every case, I post the entire original source document or source documents uh, on my website for people to view in the whole. So, you know, my interpretation, my framing, my, my, uh, my, conclusion is going to be informed by my own politics and my own goal. Um, But, you know, you could disagree with that. But what you can't disagree with are the actual documents that I've obtained. Um, But
1: you overstate the ubiquity of it?
3: Well, I've I've never really stated the ubiquity of it. I mean, it's hard to quantify, right? But I think the fact that I've gotten now, I think, 5,000 different sources reaching out to me with stories in the same vein uh, suggests that this is uh, very prevalent it's the stated policy of some of the largest school districts and states in the United States serving millions of public school students um, and then everyone I talk to it's upstate New York it's rural Washington State it's you know a uh, small school district in Arkansas this is a live issue this is something people care about um, and and I think that if anything, I think that because of the limitations of me being one person, one, you know, collector of this information, one disseminator of this information, having a limited amount of time, if anything, I think I've understated the extent that this ideology has permeated our institutions.
2: Before Camille gets in and asks you more about uh, the actual bills and such, uh, I just want to stick up or at least a, a point of clarification on the on the uh, Times and Washington Post or, or mainstream journalists. Um... I don't think that it's, that it's right to say that they are equivalent to what you're doing in the following way. Uh, it Yes, it's true that they're not going to admit their level of bias or activism, but they're also not going to be actively coordinating with legislators who are trying to pass bills and – bragging um that there's a you know tom cotton or the equivalent on the left of uh well, who's the asshole from connecticut chris murphy is control v uh their stuff and yes it's i'm sure it's very compelling uh when politicians use your language <laughs> in an argument it's super compelling it's happened to be like twice and i was like wow that's that's some compelling shit right there that stuff <laughs> i just wrote um but uh no i think i think it's an important difference that we lied those things too quickly that is not part of the culture of journalism practice of journalism normally speaking
3: sure but i i guess i i guess i fail to understand the objection i mean it's not that i'm saying it's not that i'm hiding it it's not that i'm being dishonest it's not that i'm being manipulative i'm very transparently saying this is what i do this is my process i'm a politically engaged writer um i get i i, I guess i truly don't understand the objection maybe you could outline it for me
2: well i mean i'm not sure that there has been an objection we're just asking you questions and sort of like uh a- seeing what the shape of uh, the elephant is um and so and your self con- yeah. conception yeah
1: and I yeah. If the person asked that question I don't have a specific objection to it I mean I mean probably like you and I know we've talked about it a lot on this podcast I would be much happier if people were more honest about their politics and I wouldn't care very much and we've had many many conversations about the sort of british model of journalism versus the american one where people kind of wear their politics a little more on their sleeve the telegraph is conservative the guardian is liberal etc I don't mind that so much. And, you know, look, whether or not one agrees with the tactics here, one cannot help but be very impressed by going to these school board meetings and realizing that the name Rufo is on everybody's lips. And it's coming up on, you know, presentations that I saw at a, a, a county school board meeting. In Florida two weeks ago, and someone sort of bumbling through a presentation and saying, "Well, you know, Chris Rufo." And when I asked him a question, he was quoting things back to me. they were actually in your language, so it's not even just Ted Cruz. He was saying, "Well, this is actually the truth," and and he's reading a quote. And I said, oh, "Who's that quote from?" And he said, "Oh, this guy, Chris Rufo." And I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> I know where you're going." So I don't have a I don't have an objection to it per se, but you know, and I don't think that you're presenting yourself and you've been admirably honest in all of. Of your interactions with, with journalists, that you are doing this. You're not trying to hide it. There are people, particularly in DC, that are activists and they kind of do it on the sly. You know, they, they kind of, you know, kibitz with like various lawmakers and they get things, you know, uh, changed in bills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, whether well, think tank people more than journalists. But yeah, I don't have, necessarily have a problem with it. It is a kind of unique position though, because people tend not to use the language and the tactics of journalism. Um, and when they do, they tend to just claim, you know, put their hands up and say, Hey, I'm a journalist. I'm actually not an activist. And, you know, one of the examples of this is Nicole Hannah Jones, for instance. And she comes up a lot in this debate, came up a lot in the news today because she was, uh, granted a lifetime appointment for, for God knows what reason. Um, but, you know, she shies from any, I'm not a historian, obviously. I'm a journalist and I'm just saying things that are true. So I don't have a, a have a problem with it as such, but it is, It is a weird position because I don't know who to rely on in this debate because I'm being totally honest here is that we, I think probably all agree, uh, particularly on like the corporate excesses and the madness that's overtaken people and the silliness that you get from some of these like DEI things. But what I can't tell is if somebody asks me like, you know, give me the example of where, you know, critical race theory or whatever you'd like to call it in K through 12 education has so corrupted um, this institution, so many of the teachers, so many of the, the, uh, higher ups and the superintendents that I don't know where to go to get that information. Cause I know the anecdotes from you, but I'm, that's why I'm wondering, and it was a question is like, do you overstate the ubiquity of it? That's the thing that I, I'm saying,
0: so who do I go to that's going to give me, you know, both sides of this story? Well, I, if I, if I can lob something in yeah, here, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I mean, no, not at all. Uh, the thought that comes to mind is between the journalist who is a pure journalist and the journalist activist. Everyone has a dog in, in the fight in some way, shape or form. They have perspectives on this stuff. It has some impact on their reporting and the duty of figuring out the direction that their biases lie in and the degree to which it's impacting their reporting. I, unfortunately, um, it always lays with the reader. And you kind of have to do that work for yourself and figure out whether or not something important is being left out here, whether or not you're being misled, and respond accordingly when you find patterns of dishonesty amongst these people. But I think in the specific case of the K-12 through situation, which is where all of the heat really is in terms of the kind of cultural and political battles right now, and as we've underscored already, there is probably some strong disagreement about strategy, if not outcome. but. There's a sense in which curriculums have always been a somewhat political matter and some kind of wrangling over what should and shouldn't be included in the curriculum is something that people have always had an expectation will happen. But what I think is somewhat different here is when we look at the legislation from you know, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Iowa, Texas, in certain instances, we're seeing specific political ideas targeted by legislatures for exclusion from curriculums. And in many instances, it's happening in ways that seem pretty ham-fisted to me, non-lawyer that I am. In some instances, these are things that are probably unconstitutional and may not survive a challenge in the courts. In other instances, it's probably going to be fine. But in either case, a restriction like the Texas bill explicitly says that you can't oblige students to have an understanding of the 1619 project as part of the curriculum. Well- Even if you have a class that's trying to look at this in a critical way, a student actually has to be able to read and understand this material in order to arrive at that kind of critical understanding, if it's going to be a durable critical understanding. And I think that illustrates my broader concern here. There is the kind of constitutional concern in terms of the literal letter of the law, the political instrument of the constitution. And then there's the cultural proclivities that go along with being a resident of a free society with all of these people who have diverse perspectives and an appreciation for the fact that to the extent we're going to have public schools, that's a whole nother conversation for a different day. And I would probably say, nah, get rid of those damn things because I'm a radical. But to the extent we're going to have them, they probably ought to be gymnasiums for the mind where young people are being equipped at, at the appropriate age with the critical tools for grappling with difficult and active conversations about the right way to imagine ourselves as persons in time, the right way to imagine the country? Is it noble and virtuous? Is it something less than that? How do we engage with the specific challenges associated with disparities and historical injustices associated with redlining? There are meaningful conversations to be had there. And I get concerned when there is this process that becomes even more political than I might expect it to be in other circumstances. I think there's a a material difference between school board wrangling amongst parents over the substance of the curriculum. And even as you and I have talked about in the past, Chris, a, a, a conversation about pedagogy, about the appropriate approaches to teaching There are different ways of imagining what the project of public education is, whether or not it's us trying to prepare children to be actors in our political and cultural order, or if we're trying to fill their heads with approved information. And that latter project is one that I think is beneath us as a free society. And in a similar way, I think it's beneath us to be in the business of outlawing the exploration of different ideas, which in some cases, and I know this isn't necessarily what these bills are trying to do, but in some cases, those bills do in fact move in the direction of that, or at least are ambiguous enough that they're creating serious concern amongst people that they may in fact create that outcome.
3: Yeah, I, 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 I disagree. I, I don't think that, um, I don't think that they do. And I think that, um, the are These kind of technical arguments or uh, the kind of legal uh, nitpicking arguments or interpretive arguments, I, I don't think are in all cases made in good faith. And I think they're used as a kind of technical retreat in order to not argue the substance. But I, but I want you to engage with me because I think you know that I am engaging. in No, no. In yeah, faith. I'm not definitely not and, saying. And you. I, I'm not implying that, of, of course. But OK, but but I think that we should really back up here. I I don't think that none of these bills, so there's this outrageous rhetoric that these bills ban teaching about slavery. I mean, none of these bills ban teaching about the history of slavery, segregation, racism, redlining. You can explore all of those topics in a nuanced and multi-perspectival way. You can uh, engage in kind of critical discussion about those issues. But- I want to take a step back because there is a kind of uh, asymmetry here that I think is really important to explore. You heard very little uproar that California, Oregon, Washington, and Illinois have used their state legislatures to mandate teaching the principles of critical race theory in the the K-12 curriculum and in teacher training programs. They're basically saying, Mm Our states are now required to teach these principles to students in the classroom. If it's legitimate for a state to mandate critical race theory in the classroom, it's certainly legitimate for a state with a different set of values and different voters to prohibit teaching those same concepts. And I think all the outrage is really one-sided because they miss that key point of comparison. The curriculum in California where they actually have put into the model ethnic studies outrageous things like having, you know, elementary school students chanting to the Aztec gods to become, quote, warriors for social justice. The curriculum in Texas should basically say, we don't want our students chanting to the Aztec god of human sacrifice to become social justice warriors. We want to have legislation that says, no, thank you. And I think it's really just a matter of democratic control of institutions. The question is not, uh, you know, even should California look like Texas? I think that's an important question. But the real heart of the matter is who should control public institutions? Should it be the voters? Should it be the voters through their legislators? Or should it be bureaucrats within state departments of education and school districts that, this, that decide what they want to do, regardless of what voters want. Do you want to have rule by democratic in a democratic republic? Or do you want to have a rule and a tyranny by fake experts that are really just bureaucratic and manipulative commissars of a new ideology that has very little public support in these places?
1: Do you worry, Chris, though, on the uh, on this of, of what Camille said of actually telling people that they cannot utilize material that you and maybe I would disagree with? And in this case, it's a 1619 project beyond, you know, it is a curriculum that certain schools have adopted, I think, you know, in Buffalo and some other places. But, um, you know, for instance, the Florida bill, which I, you, you had some I used to you have some input on and you maybe you've been talking to them. Uh, About this one bit of this, for instance, um, well, two bits, actually, that that I I find kind of odd. Um, This is the subsection here that says instruction on the required topics must be factual and objective. Well, good God knows what that means. It may not suppress or distort significant historical events, so it's a, it is now law in Florida that you cannot distort historical events. That would be rather baffling to historians who debate constantly about historical I, events. I don't, I don't but know, the know thing if that's that actually, law.
3: Is that from a a, a bill? Um.
1: That is the amendment that was passed by the school board two weeks ago that included uh, this section, which is uh, instruction may not utilize material from the 1619 project. Now, that is rather different than saying we're not going to use this as a full blown curriculum handed down from the people at New York Times who actually created this. But if this comes up, instruction may not utilize material. So to Camille's point, that would seem to forbid even debating it while actually citing the material. Does that stuff not worry you at all? Yeah,
3: I mean, you know, the 1619 Project, to me, is kind of a sideshow. Um, It's
1: specifically – it's not a sideshow because it's specifically noted. The only thing that is very, very specifically noted in this Florida uh, amendment – Texas does the same thing.
3: Sure. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not saying it's a sideshow in the sense that you're making it a sideshow. I I think – if it, if it were up to me, right? It's, it's there. All these bills and 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 amendments and and curriculum changes are not up to me. But if it were up to me, schools would decide if they want to use 1619 project or not. But I think that the 1619 project, which has drawn so much attention, to me, is less important than the bills that are actually trying to shape and limit and restrict pedagogies. And those bills, to me, I think Idaho is a very good one. I think that's one of the best. I think the New Hampshire's new bill that I believe just got signed into law by the governor, is also very good.
0: What's good about those laws, if you don't mind?
3: They are limited. uh, They are targeted. They are well-defined. They are beautifully crafted to basically say, you can teach, obviously, about American history, about racism and injustice, but what you can't do is compel students to believe that one race is superior to another, that people should be held responsible for collective crimes based on their ethnicity, uh, and that... You, you can't create a, a kind of classroom environment that compels people to believe all of these dogmatic, very left-wing beliefs. I think that's very smart. I think it's eminently defensible, and even people like David French mm-hmm. uh, agree that those things would pass constitutional muster. I think he also would say um, that
0: they reinforce laws that are already on the books, that if, in fact, someone were to run afoul of those principles, there would be grounds for – some sort of civil rights suit, which we already have a number of those that have been filed and that are making their way through the courts. So, in that sense, I don't have any objection to that kind of very specific, generic, and quite frankly, I mean, the only objection I have is that it, it seems to be kind of duplicative. And to the extent there is an opportunity I, there, for making mistakes, like no, that's no, a problem. No,
3: that- it's a huge, no, that's a huge error. It's not duplicative at all because the, the kind of David French position, which is, 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 is so boneheaded. It's really hard to understand. <laughs> hey, hey, is that, is that, no, it really is because his <laughs> position is, well, we already have the civil rights after 1964. The most egregious stuff would probably violate that. So parents should, be, should just file their own federal civil rights lawsuit. Well, guess what? Parents of poor kids in Buffalo School District or Philadelphia School District, where I've reported, Uh don't have the resources and the time and the money to be filing federal civil rights lawsuits every time that these things come up in the curriculum. But they do have the resources to engage in,
0: like, huge partisan political battles to change the laws of the state to prohibit this action. I mean, I I think there's something a bit dubious about I mean,
3: what are laws for? I mean, this is the basics. It's the basic concept of public institutions – are accountable to the public. Right. And the way that the public decides is through the legislative and lawmaking practice. And the civil rights of 1964 is important. In fact, one of my legal partners just yesterday, uh, filed a civil rights lawsuit against the Skokie Evanston school district. Mm-hmm. I think that will win. Um, but it's, it's, it's important. I'm involved in these suits, but it's not sufficient because it does two things wrong. One is that it doesn't cover, uh, the specifics of pedagogy that are very important. it also actually there's three things. it's not specific enough. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was created under very different conditions uh, for a very different purpose. But then also the fundamental problem, and I think the most important problem, is that putting the onus on parents to file a federal civil rights lawsuit is completely unfair and completely unjust. The burden should not be on parents to file a lawsuit that is extremely expensive and time-consuming and burdensome. The onus should be on the school districts, which have a staff, they have money, they have attorneys. They should have the ultimate responsibility to be following the law, to be within the confines of the state legislation. And by passing state legislation, you do two things. You shift the onus from the individual parent to the actual public institution, where it's rightfully placed. But you also give parents a point of major leverage. Because if I'm in Texas and they're teaching my kid in second grade, um, you know, uh, that whiteness is inherently evil, that that person should apologize for their white fragility and white privilege, and that on the oppression scale, according to intersectionality, they are the kind of uber oppressive force in the world. If I'm a parent in Texas... Did that happen
1: in Texas, by the way? In second grade? Did that actually happen in Texas in no, I'm, I'm grade?
3: making kind of an example. But all of those things are, I mean, all of those individual elements have happened in elementary schools around the country, including in the, the lawsuit that was just filed yesterday. But my point being, under that hypothetical example, right now, or prior to the law getting passed, that parent would have to file a civil rights lawsuit. Now all that parent has to do is say, here's the statute, here's the law, I'm passing on this information to the attorney general. If you don't immediately cease to teach in this kind of pedagogical framework, if you don't immediately cease this behavior, you will be held accountable under the state law. You give the parent uh, a, a great tool of leverage to enforce and to have some control over what's happening in the classroom. Whereas under the prior legal arrangement, parents were at the mercy of these bureaucrats who get to decide with no recourse.
2: You were, okay, let me jump Sorry, in. Uh, you were, uh, talking about the importance of democratic control of, uh, of education making policy. I'm curious to kind of define that a little bit in the following terms. So there's some bills now. I haven't seen the contents of it that are being talked in the federal level, uh, having to do with, uh, CRT. I presume it's going to have something to do with education in K through 12. Um, that's federal. Um, the, you know, if those pass, which they won't because the Democrats control, Congress if they were to pass that would mean, you know, Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton would be writing rules that could uh, conceivably affect my school district in Brooklyn uh where the views are very different than those of the national Republican party. Um and there are plenty of states and Texas is actually a good example of that where um, the, the state control is heavily Republican, but there might be local control in places like Austin, uh, and elsewhere, which are more democratic. So what, uh, like in terms of the party. So, uh, at what level is it, or maybe I should give a very specific example. Should there be a federal law or a state law that prevents my daughter's my eighth, eighth grade daughter being taught Ibram X. Kendi at school, which she was this year. She was assigned Ibram X. Kendi to be clear. I think Ibram X. Kendi is is an ass clown. <laughs> um and he's a, a ridiculous person. I just had I just had to read the Robin D'Angelo new book, which quotes oh. him uh nonstop. I think that she also has many clownish characteristics and I'm not uh, excited <laughs> she has about all of them the being clownish
1: characteristics. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I
2: this it's just that the review hasn't published yet. I don't yeah, want yeah, okay. dra- 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 <laughs> to it'll publish by like, the time this airs yeah. so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's true. Uh but but uh but really like uh you know local democratic control uh of education in the borough of Brooklyn and the district that I live in does not share Chris Rufo's values. It does not share Matt Welch's values. Mm-hmm. Should there be a preemptory, um, check on their pedagogic ideas no. on the state level or on the federal level? Your answer is no. So if they want, yeah, we'll, if they we'll, want to go we'll, full, I'll be, I'll
3: be very specific. So, okay, good. No, obviously, I mean, the, I have no problem. With the school district in Brooklyn assigning and teaching Eberbeck's candy. That's fine. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that reflects the, the values of the parents, presumably, the values of voters, uh, the values that have through the school board and doesn't conflict with any kind of New York state laws. That's totally fine. And there definitely 100% should not be any federal law to intervene in that. Education should be the domain, ideally, in an ideal world, education should be in the domain of parents who get to choose whatever education they like. And if that's not the situation, which it's not, it should be in the domain of local school districts and schools that decide their curriculum independently. That, unfortunately, is also not the world we live in. The world we live in is that states get to decide the state-mandated curriculum. So that's the level, and again, not my ideal solution, but that's the level where it's played. And I don't think that any federal law should supersede any of those. What- I mean, I think that is a epic mistake, and 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 would be hugely damaging. I think the solution is actually eventually. This is a short term kind of kind of tactical solution. The long term strategic solution is to hypercharge the the forces of decentralization uh-huh. and pluralism, so that a woke K through twelve school in Berkeley, California, can go full woke, and a Conservative Christian K-12 school, uh, in, you know, Spokane, Washington can go full conservative. I mean, that would be the ideal scenario. And what you do is you're not only providing a better service, you're not only providing greater democracy, a, a more, a tighter reflection of values between institution and, and public, but you're also then depolarizing and, and, and and reducing tensions of this national political battle that we find ourselves in if we can supercharge pluralism and and basically say each group and each level of society by following subsidiarity can follow its vision of the good i think we would have much less contentious national politics i think it would depolarize our politics and i think that it would be a beautiful thing to see why aren't
0: we just doing that then <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, well let's just but, do that that's like, not that's that what easy, i Camille. that's what i want <laughs> I just well, want to advocate. A, a- I just want to advocate for that because you and I agree that that's the right thing to yeah. do. The different the difficulty here is that what you just described as this this the sort of freedom that you would like to see parents in Brooklyn have, like parents in Austin won't have because of the way the Texas legislation is drafted, which specifically says that classrooms can't oblige students to have some sort of understanding of the 1619 project. Which even obliging students to demonstrate a knowledge of the 1619 project. It doesn't offend me on its face. And I think the project is not particularly good. I think it's kind of reprehensible. But the way, The reasons I think it's reprehensible are really important. And the process of understanding the thing in order to be able to repudiate it is actually like urgently important. Like to the extent a student doesn't actually have access to the material, like that's a problem. And I do think that there is a fundamental difference between a, a, a regime and that obliges things to be included, and a regime that obliges you to exclude things. Like, that latter thing is, in fact, censorship. One can say that this is acceptable no. censorship, but it is censorship to say you cannot look at that here.
3: No, I I, I think... I, I, no, I, I don't think that's right. I mean, A, the the, the very act of including something automatically excludes other things, right? You have, you're, you're in a situation where a child is in school for a limited amount of time by definition, yes, right? Yes, of course. Time is a, is a limited resource. Uh-huh. You have what, 10,000 hours basically between kindergarten and, and graduating high school. Sure. Something like that, about 10,000 classroom hours. By including A, B, and C- you are by definition excluding x y and z no you're not i mean that's just you're not you're, exclu- of course you are. you're
0: excluding something but we don't know what that something is and we don't even know that you won't yeah. find a but way if, to, to not reincorporate included, that something alongside the thing we're obliging you to include but if it's
3: not included it is by definition excluded
0: that is not true that that dichotomy won't won't fly
3: if you basically say we're studying uh you know we're studying aristotle uh homer and aristophanes and that's the that's the curriculum for the humanities, let's say. You are, by definition, not included. That doesn't
0: say you can include Mark Twain. You didn't you didn't tell me that. But I'm saying you didn't that you tell me I couldn't involve like readings from various great world religions. You didn't tell me that. Like you told me that you want an, to include in these a, in three a, in these three essential things. And quite frankly, someone like Chloe Valdery, for example, who's doing like a lot of really interesting stuff um, around these same issues with a very different approach like her approach is to include all sorts of material from other contexts like Tupac Shakur <laughs> ends up getting integrated into a curriculum to give folks a better understanding of some other great philosophical tradition to make it more resonant to students
3: sure i mean i and, would and love I, just, I would have chloe teach my own kids yeah. of course but the problem is that for every chloe valdery there are a thousand you know, of course, uh, just like, just like, you know, B level ideologues yes. that are shoving, yeah, yeah, you know, Tima Okun's, you know, <laughs> punctuality is white supremacy into the minds of, of six year olds. You won't get any uh, you know.
0: disagreement from me on that point, which is why I so, think we need to. So choice. I
3: think that we have to not, we have to also accept that we're not in a, what is the kind of ideal, uh, what does the ideal look like? And let's just, let's go for that. I mean, obviously that's part of it, but, you really need to understand what is the baseline? What is the reality right now? And the reality right now is, is not good. And these laws are an attempt to remedy that, an attempt to put power back to parents rather than bureaucrats. And, um, and I think they're, they're really tailored. The best laws are tailored to restrict the most abusive and manipulative and deceptive practices. And a lot of it's really simple. It's like you can't present the idea that one race is superior to another and force kids to believe that. I mean, that's controversial. It's crazy. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and really what this does is, and I ask libertarians this all the time. Uh, it's like, would you ban, would you, you know, I asked Robbie, how do you pronounce his name? Suave? Suave. Suave. Okay. I asked Robbie Suave. I like All oh, this stuff, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Robbie, would you, if, if, if the Klan sponsored a K through 12 curriculum and it was adopted, would you support a state law to ban it? He said, Oh, yes, of course. I would support a state law to, (laughs) you know, ban clan ideology in K-12 institutions. And then it's like, well, then what? I mean, these laws and how they're written is really, I think, beautiful. These laws would already ban a clan, a clan-based curriculum, right? You could not teach a clan-based ideological curriculum in Texas. Well, you couldn't teach that before because it
1: would be racist, right? It would, it would,
3: you could teach oh, it before. Could. There's no law there's against There's no law it, right? against I mean,
1: teaching kids that black people are inferior. I didn't know that. Um, let me ask you something specific, though, because you talk, you said that a lot of these things are beautifully crafted, et cetera. I want to go back to the Florida one because I think this is the fundamental flaw in all of this, is that when you start introducing specific things, right, when you say 1619 Project, there's no end to this. You can There's a million other things that are probably worse than the 1619 Project that people can do an end run around these laws by teaching. The thing that is constantly brought up and you brought it up probably four or five times. Is the idea of teaching that one race is superior to another, or there is some sort of inherent guilt or something? Okay, let's say that we get rid of that from you know in a legislative way. These teachers still exist. And you don't think that the hyper woke teachers are going to find other things to teach that aren't that, right? All you have to do is to teach things that are factual, you know, as it says in the, in the uh, Florida law, that are so heavily skewed to one side that only teaches about slavery, only teaches about oppression of Native Americans, only it teaches about redlining, only teaches the bad stuff in American history. That is still not illegal under Florida's law. You lose. They win. If they are half a fucking, you know, have half a functioning brain cell, they will know how to very quickly do uh, an end run around this stuff, which is why it makes me think that most of this stuff is very much a culture war, political posturing thing. Stop uh, teaching the 1619 Project. It all goes away. We all, you know, dance around our rainbow holding hands. No, because if you want to get rid of this stuff, you're going to have to start making lists of books that are like the 1619 Project to to not teach. Because I'll tell you what, even, even that will fail. Even though the open yeah. But there's no, easy I, ways of teaching quote unquote woke stuff when, even if these laws are in
3: place. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I personally, again, uh, per, this is a practical political thing. I personally would not include any specific titles to say, hey, you can't teach from these titles. I don't think that's the best approach. Um, I think that it is, um, it, it, it could be perhaps, it would require a constantly updating list, right? And I don't like the idea even just from a just from a kind of uh, uh atmospherics perspective. The idea of creating a list of books you can't read, I don't like. I uh-huh. don't think it's the best approach. I think <laughs> the, the better way, <laughs> again, <laughs> yeah. is the is the is looking at the pedagogical techniques and concepts uh-huh. and then shaping those in a series of principles that can then be tested against specific works or specific worksheets or specific items and yeah i think your your point is 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 half right i would say the half that's right is that well these you know these these teachers who are committed to this are going to find some ways to bring it into the classroom yeah there's probably some truth to that there may be deeper structural reforms that are required but the part that is that is half wrong is that um it's like this idea of we can't win now because we need to keep losing later you know it's like well, you, you know, it's, it's, it's pessimistic. It's a bit fatalistic. I think that these are very important tools. I think they're going to change the game. I think they're going to empower parents to a degree that they haven't been empowered. And I think just the fact that we're getting parents showing up by the hundreds of thousands, potentially by the millions that are actually even just the act of showing up at the school board meetings and caring about what's in their going on in their children's schools. Just that is such a tremendous force for good. Because people are invested in the institutions. They're invested in their kids' educations. They're invested in the idea that they are the ultimate authority over these bureaucracies. And so I think that we give them the tools. We craft them to the best ability possible. Um, and then we go on to the next stage. I mean, this is not like a one quick fix. You write a two page bill on the problem of public education in America is solved. I'm not saying that. I think that's, that's naive. I think it's, it's, it's incorrect. But I'm saying that this is a very important first step that has motivated millions of people to get into this fight, but it's merely a first step. And I think that there are much bigger uh, and bolder and more beautiful uh, ideas to pursue subsequent to it.
0: Well, I, I didn't have an expectation that we'd resolve our, our differences of. I think we did. Didn't we resolve it? This, this afternoon. <laughs> this evening. But, yeah. but I, I did, I did expect us to have an interesting and spirited conversation. And it's, it is very interesting because I think we agree on the destination here. It is a, a universe where parents, families have greater educational choice, that they have schools that perform better. There are many school systems that have a long history of failing children. You'll see these horrible heartbreaking stories of a kid in a Baltimore school who's graduating and they're near the top of their class and they've got like a 1.2 GPA, just obnoxiously bad stuff. And my position on this is very much not that we should embrace a strategy of losing, but to the extent there is this anger and resentment that's already out there, harnessing that in a way that is actually effectual and making certain that we're not doing it in a way that is fueling an endless cycle of culture wars. And it sounds like it sounds like it is already the case today that in certain places, people are passing legislation that goes further than you would like, and at least have an impulse to do things that go further than you would like because they believe that things are perhaps worse than they actually are, that the stakes demand that they begin to explicitly target specific bad ideas, not merely trying to achieve specific kind of better pedagogical approaches to education, not merely trying to achieve broader policies that deliver broader choice to parents. And I'm using the word merely there to make it sound more attainable. I know that that's hard work and really heavy lifting, but it seems to me that a broad cross section of parents could be in favor of both of those things, particularly the the pedagogy thing. I can imagine a world, and I know this is crazy, but I'm going to say it anyways, I could imagine a world where Chris Rufo, Camille Foster, and Nicole Hannah-Jones are all advocating for a pedagogy that is geared towards giving students the you. tools needed <laughs> to navigate complicated conversations <clears throat> and graduate as better informed potential citizens. Who are prepared to like inherit? I believe inherit the this children the of knowledge, <laughs> <laughs> and and to have like serious compli- conversations and back and forth about important issues. I I have to believe that's possible, and it's hard for me to get excited about a, a culture war that feels a lot like the Tea Party in say two thousand seven. Which I mean, where is that movement now? Where is the critical race theory? ban that the trump administration ig- ig pushed in their executive order like the chief accomplishment of that is it sort of raised the temperature on these conversations but it was immediately rolled back And yeah. the way it's castigated by its opponents is these people are fucking racist they're unwilling to talk about slavery and segregation in schools they don't want to tell the truth about history i don't know that we're helping if we're supercharging the two sides in that distinct way it just i don't know man I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to reach the goal you and I both want. I didn't bring this
1: up. It's not. It's not uh, comrade Rufo's fault. Uh, obviously, that when I went to one of these uh, school board meetings, the first two people I talked to who came up and gave presentations, uh, one of which uh, quoted uh, uh, Chris's um, New York Post article, uh, neither of them had kids. Um, mm. One was in oh, really? his 70s and had, didn't have kids at all. Uh-huh. And I realized, a really lovely guy, and I, I realized that he just loved Tucker Carlson. He was like, watch Tucker all the time. And he was like, this is the issue. This is the thing. And so when I asked him what was going on in Florida, specific examples, he didn't really have any. And I know people throw that at you, um, you know, and I know Mark Lamont Hill, etc. And you've had these debates before, which I don't, I mean, for my purpose, what I took from that was was that it, it was a Tea Party type moment that was actually rallying a lot of people who were no longer um, going to stop the steel rallies. Two people that I met at school board. Meeting. actually were in uh, uh the capitol on january 6th and they're really and one of them got kicked out of the school board meeting he started screaming and yelling and they're really really passionate about this and it's just like it's a new issue for them and I, again this i didn't present this to you because this has nothing to do with the stuff that you are doing um, sure. but it does it, it, it is coming it is becoming that kind of issue right now and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of worries I can imagine from your perspective when it gets way too political and way too partisan and way too sort of Trumpy. Uh, and it kind of, you know, undercuts you
0: in some way. You got the last word, Chris.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not worried about that, actually. Um, you should be. <laughs> and I, I think that <laughs> not, not at all. I mean, and, and, and I think for two reasons. One is to, to Camille's point, it's a lot of people, the kind of the smart interpretation is to basically say, "Oh, the culture wars are are a distraction. They're they're pointless. They're not productive. They're, you know, they turn into kind of partisan kind of conflicts that never resolve." Um, my point of view is quite different. I think that the the kind of cultural battles are fundamental and foundational and and incredibly important, and they're never totally disconnected from. Uh, structural concerns, like how do taxes work, how do public institutions work, um, those two things cannot be unlinked. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the, the, the kind of the fact and the value are are so deeply intertwined there 's no perfect technocratic solution to these problems. These are problems about human behavior and motivation and values and principles, and we should absolutely clarify them and I think when I see people revolting. Against these ideologies of critical race theory, um, yeah, I mean they might not know every nuance. They probably haven't read Derrick Bell's collected works, and you know they they couldn't trace the ideas back to Marcuse. but but they are American citizens that are are engaged in the process of politics and want to reform those institutions. And the Tea Party, you know, wins and losses but I think did have a lasting impact on the country. It brought in a lot of good people into office. Uh, it changed American politics, not in maybe all the ways that I would want or or to the extent that I would want. But, but I find it strange that we would be in this environment where people are protesting in school board meetings. And somehow that seems to be beyond the pale. When we had six months of riots, looting, arson, and destruction that had even less of a coherent political philosophy behind it, did much more damage and actually left people dead. And we're supposed to also believe at the same time that somehow that was the kind of correct way to engage in a racial reckoning or Mm -hmm. racial politics in the United States. I, I think there's so many built in, kind of baked in double standards that... I feel none of those concerns you outlined. I feel unapologetic about this. I think it's the right thing to do and um I think we should go hard at it. I mean, like let's do this. These are our children. These are our tax dollars. These are our institutions. And people are standing up and fighting. Um I think it's I think it's amazing. I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think as someone who has tried it was really kind of brought this issue to light to me it's like it's kind of astonishing it makes me feel very optimistic it makes me feel hopeful about the country if you shine the light on a problem uh, and you do it with sufficient uh kind of strategic vision and sufficient factual evidence and a, and, a, and a sufficient narrative framing you can change how politics in this country works and I I think it's just it's heartening it 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 shows me that there is a heartbeat of people who oppose the same ideologies that I oppose uh, and that we can actually inspire them to action.
1: Damn it, Chris. Damn it, Chris.
0: Damn it, Chris. Damn it, Chris. Am I wrong? You're, that, you guys no, agree, don't you're, you're, you? You're, I mean, it was too eloquent. It means who else oh, I saw can, I have to Camille, become a, a, cut a that, fucking liar? Cut it out, it out,
2: and then just put Joy Reid. I'm I just, yeah. I'm
0: gonna, I'm gonna lob one small. It's small never small. small, small. This time, no. isn't it, It's Jesus, never small, correct. but I'm gonna try. His really wife to is about to divorce him, Camille.
1: You, you, said, you,
0: said, you said you remember the last. That's no, true. Word, <laughs> do you remember the last
2: word? The 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 phrase that you used. I know. I'm gonna give you the last word. he's still got the last
0: word, but I didn't say which one would be the last word. You said the culture war is never fully disconnected or totally disconnected from kind of these core issues in our, in our society. And I think you're right about that, but I also think that they can be more or less well-connected to some of those core issues and values in our society. And you and I have been involved in conversations with people who in the process of debating the appropriate approach to these issues have said things along the lines of, um, I thought I was a free speech absolutist, but I'm sorry, I'm not. Those tactics don't work anymore. And I've heard you yourself describe, or at least read um, recently, we talked about this as well, where you talk about the inability to persuade zealots with logic, facts, and clever arguments. They only understand the language of power. And there's more to that quote, so folks can go look that up. I think there, there are people who are abandoning not merely kind of the the commitment to, or specifically the commitment to the legal notion of kind of free speech as it's constitutionally protected, but they're certainly abandoning a commitment to this notion of kind of a culture of free speech where the goal is to be able to debate these ideas out in the open because the belief is that it's hopeless now. Like something has fundamentally changed. We can't do that anymore. Those rules don't apply any longer. And I could be with you where I'm excited about people at these school boards up in arms, ready to do something because people are doing something that they feel uncomfortable with. If they were aiming at a different basket, if they were aiming at the kind of pedagogical reforms that you talked about here eloquently, and if they were aiming at choice, as you talked about here eloquently, but- when they seem more inclined towards the belief that we are sort of teetering towards inevitable like race wars as some people do and that we have to vacate particular principles in order to safeguard the polity like i worry about what's left once you've vacated certain principles and ideals and now I'm genuinely going to give you the last word. You could say anything you want after right. that. You could even say, Camille, yeah, that's some bullshit. And I won't say <laughs> I anything that afterwards.
3: I, I, I think we probably agree more than we disagree. And I think that – I hope so. And I, I think we have to make a, a vital distinction between the kind of private and civic sphere and the public and governmental sphere. So in a private and civic sphere, I think I'm probably with you, almost a, almost a free speech absolutist. Uh, that you, as an individual american have are entitled to the protection of your speech, especially political speech, uh, with very very limited restrictions. but in the context of public schools, for example, um, there is no the government does not have free speech rights free speech the first amendment was not designed to protect the government against the people. The free speech was designed to protect the people against the government so that when we're limiting or constraining or shaping the speech of public institutions, it is a hundred percent political decision. And that I think oftentimes this kind of uh, uh, a naive uh, libertarianism can't make the distinction between those two things and 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 believe somehow that free speech principles should be applied to the government um, but government is, by essence, politics. It's decided it's it's a way of negotiating power relations. So appealing to principle in an institution that is that is created by and functions through political power is 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 doomed to be ineffective. What you have to do is you have to say we are going to shape these institutions according to the will of the people we will encourage a culture of free speech and culture and a culture of inquiry, but we're not going to let uh ideologues and 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 people who would harm, manipulate, or coerce our kids and violate their conscience to operate with no restriction. Um and I think that's the right answer to the question. I think it's it it, it involves The ability to separate the two spheres. Um, but I think once you go there and you realize that politics is political, that, that state institutions are shaped by politics, uh, I think you're then engaging with a reality that is, that is more Machiavelli than it is, you know, uh, than it is utopian, but is, 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 is is much more connected with reality. And if you accept that as the baseline, you can make decisions that are going to be actually good for kids and good for human flourishing.
0: Chris Rufo, ladies and gentlemen, just called me naive. I'm going to let it stand. Let it stand.
1: Because <laughs> you know what the difference <laughs> is? Is that every two seconds I want to jump in and be like, man motherfucking chris you crazy but the reason i didn't is because i'm not joy Reid. and we let people talk on this podcast yeah. you get to hear their ideas even when they lie even when they lie even when they
0: lie
1: no i i will just say that you whether or not you're right or wrong um people can look at the way you've actually uh fought this campaign in the future, and, uh, you know, it's the better version of Lee Atwater, but you've done an incredible job at actually transforming this in a year. And it's it's a textbook. I mean, thank that's so what's much. interesting to me is how well you've pulled this off. It's, it's really impressive.
2: It's, it's astonishing. Really impressive. It's actually astonishing. Yeah. So, I appreciate it, guys. So that's thank you, Chris. I appreciate
3: it. All right, guys. It's strange to oh, me wait, that you have me respond. This is not hold, a hold, hold, hold. monologue. This one should moment. be a dialogue, no, uh, right? Am I right? It's, well, it's my show, so it's it's how I want to do it. So let me let me read you one more quote from him.
0: Well, yeah. So we got rid of that Chris Rufo asshole. Um, Fuck disagreeable, him. <laughs> disagreeable. Call me call me naive. Do you yeah. believe that naive libertarianism? That's not the first time he's used that line on me. It's naive libertarianism.
2: I called David Damn French Chris. boneheaded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, I would commend people to listen to the debate between Chris Rufo and David French on Barry Weiss's podcast and uh, uh, yeah, you yeah. Can make your own uh, determination. But no, uh, I, I think, think it's David acquitted eliminated. himself quite well. So
0: I think that's right. I, I do not think David is a bonehead. I don't think Chris is a bonehead either. Um, I am. I am. To the extent David is a bonehead. I'm probably a bonehead, too, because I agree with him. In fact, we I th- Here's the thing. I, I'm a little reluctant to say it because the thing hasn't been published yet, but we have kind of collaborated on a piece that maybe will show up in the New York Times, but maybe it won't. I don't know. We'll see. It yeah, could <laughs> show up someplace. Yeah, show up yeah. some we. Who's the we? Uh, uh, myself, David French, Jason Stanley,
2: Tom. Thomas Chatterton Williams. Jason wow. Stanley? Yeah. It has oh, an, wow.
0: an, interesting, an interesting quartet you
2: gotta, there. You got to tell Jason Stanley he needs to start going by the nickname of Chicken. <laughs> don't explain Why? it to him because he, he won't get the reference but uh okay. but uh,
1: chicken stanley right. I don't Chicken get stanley chicken oh. stanley
2: he was the uh he was the uh the the huge adam's Appled uh shitty backup shortstop for the 70s yankees uh oh, fred okay. chicken stanley not oh. so to
1: be confused with bob steamer stanley the the mm. red sox relief pitcher um mm. Here's the thing that I, I we can say because Rufo doesn't give a shit. He's like a he's a warrior. He doesn't give a shit that we talk about him afterwards, <laughs> unlike other losers. Um, I will say this because you know we do this thing where we let people talk and we try not to interrupt them too much and make them uh, have them state their case. Um, which a lot of people haven't been allowing Rufo to do. But mm-hmm. I do find it always curious that, you know, for instance, when I read the section of the Florida law that I found really troubling, there's no response to it. There's never like, you know what, that actually is too far saying you cannot read this sort of material. Ultimately you get to the point where you say, well, I don't want that. I want a world in which people in Berkeley can teach this and the people in, you know, wherever can teach something else. Um, and, and, you know, it's always the same it's always the same thing of like a pe- kids, white people are being taught that they're oppressors or whatever. I just don't know how much of that is actually out there because I don't hear a lot of real world examples. So when he said that, you know, a second grader in Texas is, I was like, wait, did that actually happen? And it's like, no, but there's a million examples. It's like, okay, we'll start quoting them chapter and verse because I just don't, there's always a presumption that what is happening is true and it's just it's plausible enough because look at the columbia's te- columbia teachers college how many members mm-hmm. of the weather underground teach at the columbia teachers college you know
2: all of them all of them
1: too. right it's it, it's a it's a pretty radical uh place so it, and you know we all went to college and all those people that we learned from in college wouldn't be surprising if that same stuff was happening in high schools and and uh middle schools or whatever yeah. but i just it's just so much of a the case just is not very convincing to me.
0: That's all. But I mean, and, and we get a lot of messages as well. And Matt has his experiences in, in school with his children. I mean, I got a, a text today from a mutual friend who describes a circumstance where a friend of theirs literally had to pull their kids out of a preschool today.
3: Mm-hmm. Because
0: they discovered that the two children who attend the school, the the slightly older one, like could not stop talking about race when they came home, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, "Hey, what the hell is going on?" And the school says explicitly that they are teaching critical race theory, and they're not accepting feedback. We're <laughs> talking about like a three year old and a one and a half, one and a half year old. Well, that's not right accepting. Um, you can just pull them and bring them somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. that's the whole thing. Like you have to yeah. pull them. So I, my thing is, I think yeah. it is actually, I think it is actually pretty ubiquitous. I think it is happening in a lot of places. Um, my concern though is, if it's happening in a lot of places, and your response to that is, "Oh, we're gonna pass some laws. We're gonna put a stop to this," mm-hmm. that's not good enough. You're yeah. abandoning the field. The ideas will carry on. In fact, those ideas are animated in some sense by the strident political legislative opposition to those ideas know, because man. they get recasted they get recasted know, as something virtuous and good and i'm I, on your team a, but
2: i but i uh i don't know that like the ideas of critical race theory are now stronger than they were before chris Rufo marketed the term uh, uh, as a term, a rallying point of opposition, uh, and people and overcorrected and are part of that. But like, um, he marketed uh, and the people around him and other people who got excited about this. And now mm-hmm. Steve Bannon and Ted Cruz and a bunch of other, and like half of the, uh, right of center organizations in Washington, D.C., who now that's all they put in their bullshit, uh, push emails, uh, that I, I'm still on the mailing list for the spam folders haven't completely excised. Um, uh, it was successful in getting it attention that it wouldn't otherwise have gotten, and rally the opposition of, of you know, very important patriots who you know was five months ago were at the Capitol. Um, but like it, it, it people were made aware of a thing that um, was pretty esoteric just a couple of years ago. But it's on the march. So there's, I'm on your team, as you well know, Camille. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Generally speaking, on this, but I think it's a challenge to you know uh uh the due process liberals of the world um in the old-timey sense Mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. a david french territory and and i think all of us are are closer to that than other kind of smash mouth conservatives of like all right well how how did your due process liberalism do in advertising this you know like Chris Rufo has has had more of an impact on this than Matt Welch has. Matt Welch's been writing about this since September 2019. Um uh and so it's worth thinking about that too. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think and, I think
0: that, and, that political the the political progress that's been made here is is undeniable. Like the the heat, the temperature of the culture war is undeniable. It's off the charts. Like it is the center Ru-
2: of, of our, it.
0: it is the center of our it. politics. It is a bloody it is a bloody conflict. It is also a complete fucking mess. And uh, yeah, my, and my th- thing is, yeah. I don't know that this catastrophe like actually ends with the things that Chris says he actually wants, which is greater want. choice, greater choice and improve uh, an improved, an improved uh, pedagogical model for teaching in schools. I don't think you get either of these things this way. I think you get a wildfire. And I think that wildfire gets you all sorts of unexpected bad outcomes and legislation that is bad in ways that Chris himself agrees are, are actually bad things if, in fact, they're true. He disagrees that the legislation actually does the things that we say it does. Um, I, I mean, we're just going to disagree on that, but I think I'm, I'm right about it. I've looked into this stuff. Um, but in some cases, they do overreach. And he acknowledges that those things are overreaches. In some cases, they are accomplishing the opposite of what he says his goal would be. He wants there to be a world where the the parents in Austin can kind of choose to do certain things. And in fact, today, that world, it's less that world today because of the kind of legislation that he's been advocating for, at least because of the kind of people who are now energetic and are going after developing these policies, but I think I don't, a want to, amount, I don't want yeah. to relit- relitigate all of this no, no, in his no, absence. No, no, um, no, no, no But there's a certain amount of form, magical thinking
1: obviously. that goes on with this stuff, and you know, Matt brought up Bannon, sure. I and mean, Bannon is licking his lips at this because it's exactly the type of cultural issue that he loves. I mean, isn't, oh yes, Bannon's never spoken about K through 12 education before, but now like <laughs> said, he's animated by it because it's animating the people that he wants to animate, right? and you know this if you actually took this stuff seriously if you actually took pedagogy seriously you would be very very worried about a piece of legislation or a rule or an amendment in the in front of the Florida uh, school board in which i after it passed nobody would, everyone ran away no one would talk to me but somebody did uh, one person did, and I questioned him on the sixteen nineteen thing, and he's like, "No, it just says that we can't teach it as uh, like uh, a curriculum." And I said, "Well, that's not what it says. It actually says this." And I read to him. He's like, "Well," and I was like, "You literally just passed this five minutes ago, and you have no idea what it says," which is shocking because they don't care what it says. I don't think I don't think Chris really cares what it says because you know if he did, he would you know really care about the pedagogy. I, I think he would have a, a series of answers to say like uh, they say, well, you have to teach the truth. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, honestly, anybody with half a brain cell would say that is something that you can attack people for, you know, draw them before some sort of tribunal because you say, well, that's not the truth. And then you have to have a whole big conversation about what is true and what is it, what isn't true in American history, or the thing that says you cannot actually reference the 1619 project, which is actually a thing that exists and won a Pulitzer Prize, whether you like it or not. That is a thing that is going to gain strength, because when I was in school, there were all sorts of kind of lefty talking points about American history that were flagrantly false. And it's a lot of debating to convince people that, say, Alger Hiss or the Rosenbergs weren't railroaded, were actually spies. Millions of little issues like this. I don't want those legislated against. I don't want you know school boards saying you must acknowledge that the Rosenbergs were actually spies and they weren't set up. I mean, what? Wh- where's the end to this stuff? Well, I don't think people actually care to think that there's an end to it. They're, they like the battle they're in right now because the mm. battle has no end. And the battle is the point. The victory isn't the point. Yeah, yeah we can move on. I mean, the, the
2: the end is that those who are not interested or invested or attracted to the fight um, in the same way that uh, people on both sides of the fight are really invested and interested in it. Uh, Will vacate. Yeah. Um. So, in some senses, and I I think referenced this last time we were talking. Um. That that's a victory for those who want to, uh, you know, break up public education. Um. That's not the way that I would do it. Yeah. Um. If that's if that's the goal, because I, I, I just think it's we we're at we're facing a relentless uh kind of uh, joyless awful battle over any institution that's perceived as neutral. Um, Mm -hmm. and because we're in a polarized culture war Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so like, it's going to be courts, it's going to be election laws, it's going to be public schools, it's going to be the media in in a different sense, but a similar one. Like, it's just going to be knocked down, drag, redistricting, my God. Um, it was just going to be awful the next two years. People are going to be curb stomping one another about this. And some people like to watch a curb stomping. I don't. <laughs> um, and a lot of, a lot of people on the kind of due process liberal, classical liberal side, they don't like it. They don't have, you know, and, and the Chris Ruvo's the world to say, hey, we're soft. We're soft, we're bono. We're like thinking about legalisms when he's busy writing law, and that's totally different than legalisms. Um, but uh, you care yeah, about due process anyways, matters. So. You
1: sent a really celebratory email today about Bill Cosby, and I was like, well, that's really weird." I didn't expect
2: that. You. <laughs> You're like, you know,
1: finally. And I said, "Is this Felicia <laughs> <On> the- <laughs> Rashad?" And you said, "No, on, uh, it's Ahmed Rashad."
2: <laughs> on the, uh, I I was the first person to share it on the Reason Slack, and obviously, what are the three words that I'm going to put in front of the link?
1: Thank fucking God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Oh, man.
0: Oh, my yeah, God. People,
1: uh, tragedy is funny.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is no, not it's because joke. we think Bill Cosby is a joke. He's I, hilarious. I, I, well,
1: he, man, his records are
0: funny. I, I want to um, actually I, talk about I, the Cosby I, thing a little bit, but I also, I mean, I'm, I know in a couple of weeks, we may be talking to the the author of this tome, But I am reminded of this this passage from a book as we talk about the, the temperature of the political conflicts in the country and the degree to which people are motivated by the things that they hate and that the fight is everything. And essentially we're fighting over things that are so existential that if the only thing that's left is a hulking ruin that is steaming afterwards, that's probably worth it because it's better than them like murdering all of us and the the race war that will inevitably happen um it's it's um Tucker Carlson describing you know the the battle over c r t as how do we get out of this vortex this cycle before it's too late? How do we save this country before we become Rwanda like I mean, I suppose that's a possibility. Maybe we'll. I saw Chris Ruffo hack one of his neighbors apart with a with a machete, and I was like, <laughs>
1: "Dude, that's a little
0: too much." And he's like, "I don't think that." It was inevitable. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, right? And to the extent that's coming, the fundamental problem is probably not the particular thing that we're debating. It's something more fundamental than that. Um, but I, but I know that we're going to talk to Jonathan Rauch in a in a couple of weeks. Um, And maybe even next week, I don't remember what day we said, but it might be next week. Maybe it's the week after, but we will talk about his new book, The Constitution of Knowledge and excerpt from the book that I think is really applicable is uh, one that says the problem of maintaining the peace in the face of ideological conflicts is an existential challenge of every human society. No society can exist without maintaining it. And when the mechanisms to manage conflicts of belief break down, societies begin to behave more tribally. And when that happens, creedal conflicts and political conflicts become indistinguishable. And I mean, it just seems like such an apt description of where our politics are. And it's very hard for me to get excited about anything that accelerates and intensifies those conflicts rather than ratcheting them down. Like I have very radical ideas about what society ought to look like and what government ought to do. And most people disagree with me on all of that. But one thing that I know for sure is that I'm going to have to share the planet with other people who have different ideas and figuring out how to do that in a sustainable fucking way is of paramount Mm -hmm. importance. And I just, I, I think we have to prioritize that. And I think we have to prioritize the institutions that make that possible in a way that is fruitful And by institutions, I don't merely mean like a building that exists or even a document that governs how we we interact with one another. I also mean the cultural moorings um, that make it possible for us to not believe that everyone who disagrees with us is a fucking monster who's out to murder us uh, because that isn't true. I think the fundamental disagreement here is like good people on both sides who believe that we're not talking about things in the right kinds of ways and we have to find a way through this garbage. It's a hugely
1: important point that's often overlooked is that the downstream effects from this stuff is that like you can't keep on thinking that waging these absurd, overwrought, overstated, hyperventilating culture war issues. I'm not talking about what we were just talking about with Rufo either, just in general. Yeah, yeah. And think that there's going to be no collateral damage from it. It's not going to screw up our politics and our our culture in any way. And like we didn't get to – you know, all of this madness about about race out of nowhere. I mean, it came from places, and it came, you know, it's particularly a a effect of, you know, a kind of post-Trump effect. This is what happens when you have somebody like Donald Trump as the president. I'm not blaming him entirely, but you know, the George Floyd thing was, why was this the moment of a reckoning, right? I mean, something where an officer is explicitly racist, says something explicitly racist, has a history of that, etc., is a, you know, more logical flashpoint for something like this, but a combination of COVID and a combination of all of this kind of moving, uh, towards this kind of culture of, of, you know, constantly discussing and framing things through the, through the lens of race. I'll give you an example of this because we did, say, we talked on the Patreon. I think it was, was that on the Patreon. We talked about, um, tra- racist traffic accidents. Um, was that on the Patreon? Maybe it was on the regular one. No, yeah, I think it's it on the regular one. Okay. On right. Well, I have a new one for you. <laughs> got to send you this guy this is where you end up with stories like this is a mainstream newspaper this is in the guardian here's the headline this is great i love this one i mean this is actually really great us needs 30 million new trees to combat shade disparity study <laughs> no <laughs> no, totally no subhead first ever nationwide tally of trees reveals how communities of color in poorer na- neighborhoods lack canopy yeah
0: it, I mean, you can't translate I mean, I mean, that kind of commitment it. to identity politics shit out of existence. It is there. It is in the water and we have to contend with it. If you want to ratchet it down, I, well, I if you rec- want it to go away, you have to contend with it directly,
1: forcefully. I want to recommend t- t- another piece too. Um, I didn't send you guys. This is one. I think fig- it was a nice day. I figured you had nothing. <laughs> uh, this is the New York Times today. Target store closings show limits of pledge to black communities. Mm. And the piece is about how a Target store that opened to much fan for it, I think in 2008 in Baltimore had closed. Huh. Um, and they were like, look, we tried to keep it open, but, but we, we, we couldn't. We closed it. And, uh, you know, we have uh, a lot of Target stores and other communities that are predominantly black or Hispanic or whatever. And the New York Times goes on in like a 4,000 word piece about the horrible, uh, <laughs> outcomes here. That because they weren't making enough money, like what is, it's like literally the store closed because, you know, stores mm. closed when there's, you know, enough business. And that's literally framed as an unbelievable racial injustice in Baltimore that the Target closed. And they're like, you know, Target has pledged all this money to like racial causes. But, you know, the store in Baltimore closed. So, you know, what's going on, guys? <laughs> it's just like, I don't know what planet I'm living on anymore. It's like, how like is there really nothing else to write about? Oh, maybe you could write about how there's a canopy issue in certain (laughs) communities because of canopy racism. Like, I have no, like, canopy, like, you know, things you eat at a party. No, 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 canopy. Oh my God. I hate everything. You all fuck Don't give Uh, up.
0: Don't hang, hang in there as
2: the, as that poster says. (laughs) I, um,
1: the cat uh, on a string.
2: So to speak. So I uh, have read, as I was mentioning, um, the Robin DiAngelo um, oh, yes. follow up to yes. white fragility. It's called nice mm. racism. It's the best kind of um, racism. And uh, it's clearly like uh, intended to be in the same flavor of inducement of guilt uh, f- uh, among white progressives. I mean, the sub subhead is how progressive white people perpetuate racial harm. Yeah. Good. Right? <laughs> like, so her target audience <laughs> is herself. Like you're, You're not doing it yourself, a Seattle like, uh, assistant education professor at the University of Washington who has absolutely made bank. She's making – I calculated it uh, uh, based on her own self-reporting because she has a financial accountability page um, Mm -hmm. on her website that she tells people to look at. And so I looked at it. And like in 2018, her average—and this is all in response to a Washington Free Beacon piece—that she's like, "Say, oh, it's just lies." <laughs> um, but uh, you know, her—you know—her speaking engagements and moderation of various uh, uh, seminars and and, uh, and all-day training, whatever's to, to not be a racist. Um, uh, the speaking fees range, range from pro bono all the way up to thirty thousand dollars, but the average. 2018 was about $6,200, and then in 2019, it was $9,000. And as of August 2020 of last year, uh, it was $14,000 per engagement. Um, Elsewhere in her book, she says, yeah, I give weekly talks uh, to, in front of wide audience. A weekly times $14,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is a lot of fucking mm. money, and she you know is, how much
1: she's making from those books too. I mean, they sold so many copies. I mean, she's making she, royalties like crazy. Yeah,
2: but as, no, but her royalty rate is just seven point five percent. Michael, <laughs> <laughs> and, she has a, and, she has an
1: agent who negotiates her rate down. <laughs> she should fire that agent, or does she give the agent the rest of the money out of like some sort she of she or something?
2: but it I thought <laughs> she's I thought, also lying. <laughs> I thought that it might be useful because she has a whole section here about the more subtle methods of racial hmm. insensitivity mm-hmm. that us white people employ mm-hmm. um, uh, around our black hmm. friends, Michael. And so these have. A racist- make that singular? <laughs> <man>. <laughs> uh, these have, uh, around your you. bla- black friend, yeah. Uh, around are not my friend. Hand, I'm trying to calm my wife I
1: don't really have
2: uh, one. these have a racist impact and contribute to an overall racist racist experience for BIPOC mm. people, which uh-huh. is how she uses it. Yeah. BIPOC yeah, yeah. people ATM machine. <laughs> an experience that may be all the more maddeningly precisely because it is easy to deny and hard to prove. I am constantly <laughs> asked for examples of this type of behavior, and so here are a few and she a bunch of bullet points. Of what white people uh, do um, <laughs> white people. That, uh, th- that might Ugh, be them. a racism against our black
0: acquaintances. <laughs> yeah, you can't uh-huh. quite So I was thinking that it, you might see. Yeah, it's impossible for white and black people no, to no, actually are,
1: be friends. Well, considering we're being racist yeah. to all the time, I mean, it's hard <laughs> to be friends with.
2: So could, confusing <laughs> one person for another of the mm. same racial group. I think that happened on the last podcast uh, that Camille mm. called me out for. Um, by the way that's like a,
1: there was like a Chris Rock sketch about that on SNL like literally where he keeps on being mistaken like you know okay so that's racist and what, what if people actually do look, <laughs> look like?
0: wow is that like sometimes people actually do look wow alike. no they really they really like, oh my god it look looks, looks like i mean that's the problem Look no, but like at the yeah. white fragility just going. <laughs> <But> sometimes, <laughs> like, so, you know how they have like uh. impersonators
1: uh for like the president and things because they look like people, right? Oh, so are no. there no impersonators who are black because they like, a, if a white person says like, you should be an impersonator of, I don't right. know, Thurgood Marshall, you know, a huge of parties. Uh. People love that. The Thurgood Marshall impersonator. <laughs> um, can they not suggest that they could make extra money uh, doing that because it was racist. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm just getting. I'm just getting. Hey, man. I'm just trying yeah. to confront confront
2: my fragilities. <laughs> just name name yeah. your fragility. Uh, yeah. Not not taking the effort to learn someone's mm. name, always mispronouncing oh. it. Okay, going, <laughs> <laughs> How many racist guests that <laughs> we have then? Oh, so many. Did you just <laughs> mention Jason Stanley? Stanley, a fucking racist. He won't you. deny what, what was his? <laughs> he, he was like. He, he was like Kamala, like yeah. it wasn't even close. Oh, okay. <laughs> he was Kamali. He was definitely Kimmele. yeah, yeah. As, And he was
1: so earnest about
0: it. He was like, you know, Kamali, <laughs> the problem is... As I've said, I <laughs> formally adopted the position that there is no mispronunciation of my name. There, There isn't one. But but yeah, continue yeah. with the... Do you know
2: people mispronounce a lot of people's names, by the way? You
0: know? Yeah, like but Michael-ish mostly to, mostly to Negroes. Mad. This is the real problem. To BIPOCs.
2: Right. Is this something BIPOC. that me and, and Michael do? Repeating, rewording, explaining what a BIPOC huh. person just said.
1: Good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do that all the time. I so <laughs> yes. I don't even know why he's on the podcast. I was, to I was
2: trying to do it tonight when he was asking yeah, one of those 15-minute yeah. questions. Like, yeah. uh, before he finishes, can I just tell you what he's going to fucking it yeah. ask? Yeah. Yeah. It's but a strategy. Is yeah. he sleeping? Uh, Let me uh, put this in language that
1: you can understand, sir. What Camellia uh, is trying to say yeah. is that Camellia looks like a friend of mine. Uh, you, you hit all of them in one
0: in one moment. I like
1: when you say uh, that. Though touch-
0: this example reminds me of that scene from Airplane, where they're talking in jive and there's a translator. It's just like, oh yeah, it is great it with it is June great. Cleaver. So when yes. when a black person does it to another black person, like Sheet. that. Isn't racist, but if you do it as a white person, yeah. but a blind person, it's no, racist. no, no, but whatever. Okay, continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: touching I can laminate yeah. these and put them in yeah. my pockets like the Ten commandments. commandments. Remember to do it. Uh, if you ever run into Don Lemon at your local <laughs> hardware store, uh, touching, commenting on, marveling at, and asking questions about always the hair a black person's hair of course man robin d'angelo just breathtaking you know what this is revelatory stuff in my defense because i've mentioned uh, this uh, about camille's hair we've been podcasting as recently as like in the last 10 days we're like talking, mm-hmm. having a serious conversation. He's got like this fucking dog paddle <laughs> brush and he's like yeah, doing shit on yeah. his hair. Yeah, he does. Uh, yeah. I don't do that. Don't, I don't, don't ask about it. I don't new, bring my white coat out here. Like, dude.
0: Yeah, I'm just getting the little baby dreads going there. Gee, it's the look. It's the style. I mean, by the way, that is like the rivers of blood speech. If you ask somebody
1: <laughs> yeah. about what about what they're doing, that's just fully fascist. Oh my god, your point. hair is beautiful. You fucking racist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but community texture.
1: And, Shut up. Community. And come with like a huge afro. and No one can talk
0: about it. you would be like, what's? Oh my it god, going? it just I looks so healthy. Him. What do you mind if I touch? Don't touch me.
2: <laughs> that is yeah. assault. Unbelievable. I thought the thing is yeah. we can't touch black women's hair. We can touch black dudes. You know, that, that was the thing that it, it's very
1: uh, notorious that Bull Connor used to go asking people about their hair all the time. <laughs> He's like, "What's yeah. up with the hair?"
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, expecting yep. BIPOC people to be interested in and skilled at doing any work related to race. Uh, and, and what does work mean? Do the work. Do the work. <laughs> do the
0: work. Uh,
2: yeah. So it, you have
1: to be conscious of race all the time, but you never have to. You can never talk about it because right. then you're offending people. Yeah. They're doing work.
2: Uh, Calling a black person articulate. Okay. I mean, every time. Uh, Yeah. I I get that
1: all the time. She got a fucking advance for this book? Literally, my daughter could write this. (laughs) Expressing (laughs) surprise
2: at their intelligence credentials or class status. No, we express uh, surprise. Um, that he's so fucking obsessed With his class status That's different, yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's different. Yeah. I, I deny yeah. his class status I think that he's yeah. putting on a front uh, yeah, but like uh, it's
1: not because he's black; it's because he's Jamaican. <laughs> like, like,
2: That's Jamaican people are
1: like, mm, no, so, like, like mad about it.
0: <laughs> oh my god! Uh, I mean, but, but but I do possess superior intellect. Oh, I mean, this is just this is the problem. Like, but if I, if anyone pointed that out, be super racist. And I'm yeah. exceptionally bright. I mean, these things yeah. are just true. And the notion that it would become it would become a crime for You to state the obvious truth is just uh is shocking to me. This so is relevant, must this be is, true.
2: This is a relevant is best-selling way to author here. To, yeah. to interrupt you. Um, speaking yeah. over interrupting a BIPOC person <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that is totally racist, and she is right about that. And y'all do it all the time,
2: yeah, we do. Uh, lecturing yeah. BIPOC people on the answer to racism, and she mm. includes this uh, people just need to dot dot dot, mm.
0: Mm. yeah.
2: This is basically,
0: can't have an opinion on these things if you're white. No, this is basically
1: a guide to just never having a black friend. It's like, (laughs) why bother? Because the rules are so like, you can't have an opinion about this. You can't talk about anything. Just sit and smile. And say I am so fucking sorry for what happened to you, yeah. despite the fact that you have more money than me. This, <laughs> this is
2: this is a, a, a bullet point that should have been just called Moynihan. It is uh well, oh no slipping into a southern accent or other caricature when talking to or about black people. I Why mean, is that? Bar- what am I? Fucking Barack Hillary Ob- Clinton? Ba- Barack
0: on. Obama does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Barack yeah. Obama slips into the cadence of a preacher. He even yeah. starts singing Al Green yeah are that's you right. kidding
2: and not have right. as good as camille sings out who that's does, true that's i know my hillary did that but I,
0: hillary
1: did that because she's from like she lived in arkansas right i thought that was what she was doing that for but and that was like her cadence when she was on the campaign trail with her husband that's what my my guess was but who knows do you but, not, i don't know do you not
2: know. have a jesse jackson cadence michael
1: yeah, but that's not Southern. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. It's, that's like, the that's anti-racist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but isn't, yeah, like, it is racist to to do a Southern accent because it's just like, how are you doing it? Yeah, Are you doing it in the Hillary Clinton way or are you doing it in the, like, I'm a sheriff in 1965 way? You got to do the sheriff. that Wait. one's bad. Right? That one, yeah. Stay woke. We have a march yeah. to finish.
4: What? On this Lord's Day... Let us say with one voice the words of James Cleveland's great freedom hymn.
0: Oh yeah. Uh-uh.
4: I don't feel no ways tired.
0: Oh no. Oh no.
4: Far <laughs> oh, wow. from where I started from. Mm. Nobody told me that the road would mm. be easy. I don't believe he brought me this far. Do oh no. Me?
1: Oh wow. holy spirit. Holy Spirit. Oh. We, know. <laughs> we know.
4: We know. Oh my
1: when we God.
4: This March, what awaits
1: us? Yes.
4: Paul told us. Oh
1: the my God. What awaits you is Robin D'Angelo calling you a racist. <laughs> 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 <That's> what <laughs> what wow. Send that book
0: to and Hillary. I don't believe he wow. brought me this far to leave me. <laughs>
1: I mm. want to tell you people. <laughs> yes. I am going to win the election uh, versus uh, Donald Trump. All right now. Who is a man <laughs> of racist attitudes.
0: You just want to cut his balls off? Is that how racist he is? Too
1: many platitudes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And not enough fortitudes. (laughs) not enough (laughs) grow a pair of brains.
1: That's a deep cut. Oh, my God. Yeah, they know. They know.
2: Uh, Anything else? Uh, there's a bunch of about? other ones, but I'll just end uh, this. asking how to start a diversity consulting business because you attended a talk and found it interesting. Uh, well, we've been asking. You don't, you don't wait, want wait, to compete wait, wait. So with stop, stop, stop. Is
1: that real? <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Is that <laughs> no, real? No, dude. Uh, that's like an anti-competitive. thing. Yeah. Dude, 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 dude. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Stay this, in your lane. This book, I don't want to give away too much because <laughs> when this is posted, I will have had a thing that's up on the website for a long time. But yeah, read, read, their, but, read Matt's review. Uh, um, uh, the whole thing is a series of her complaining that the people who went to her seminars didn't all agree with Suck. agree with her. She's so yeah, mad yeah, yeah, yeah. at Sue and Bob. She's so mad at, at yeah. people like who after she gave a whole talk about how like individualism is obviously white privilege. Um, uh, a couple of people came up and said, I, I still think we should treat people like individuals. She's like, I can't do. They understand that I'm a credentialed presenter. I'm a New York Times best-selling author. She actually uses that at some point mm-hmm. to be mad at a London cab driver who was insufficient. like he didn't even ask. He had the opportunity to ask a New York Times best-selling author about race. He didn't even his white in curiosity. Like the whole mm-hmm. thing is like this she had a geez, white cab driver in curiosity. London's weird. I mean, maybe yeah. <laughs> it's New York you
1: know, Times <laughs> Number one author. <laughs> I thought you were Anne Coulton. <laughs> what the fuck is this? Robin D'Angelo. Get out of my fucking can. Don't like you at all. <laughs>
3: what is, what, what is what is she
1: expecting to be asked by some grubby East End guy well, who knows the roads of London like the back the problem say. in
2: this case was that he uh, they were having a perfectly fine conversation until he asked her mm-hmm. what she was doing here and who she was. And she's like, Oh, I wrote a book called white fragility. Um, and then he's like, I'm sick and tired of being called a racist. Um, and so she's like, ah, oh, here we go again. You know, the white, the classic white defensiveness, um, and then Ooh. later uh, was uh, complaining that uh, uh, he's always a bit skeeped out by this little group of black dudes who hang out in his neighborhood. So she's like, OK,
1: that's by the, that part's made up, by the way. He, she just made that part up. But the other part's probably <laughs> that he was like, because I hear that all the time. But people are like, I'm so tired of this. And as I've said in this podcast, where I think that most people who say that. They've never been called a racist. They just, it's kind of a thing that people say now, but yeah, that it, it, half this shit is probably, I that. I didn't, I didn't but, write um, about
2: this. It's interesting if someone else has, or is a, a, a thing of investigation, but at some point, uh, this is kind of a Moynihan point, uh, cause it's all class warrior stuff. Uh, I didn't know a lot about her uh, before I read this. Um, uh, she describes for a couple of pages, her uh, upbringing. And it's like this absolutely Dickensian horror show of like a single mother and uh, telling her kids, you can't get sick because we don't have health insurance and mm. you will die. And so you better not get sick. And there's no love in the family. And like her grandmother told her, don't pick up trash because a black person might've told it. Like none of it is believable. Like just mm. as a, as like mm. she's 64, I'm 52. So she's a little bit older, but like not, A tremendous amount older and like uh but like it it is a level of poverty and joylessness and horror um which uh it seems incredible uh to me um so yeah i I don't
1: so it's like angela's ashes of white fragility and it basically proves that if any of it's true that everybody in her family was mentally ill
2: so I, I mean, mean it's this- like that, Like it, it, it's such an arid, joyless, and sour experience. And the and the the worldview that she wants people to get, to get in with, like it's an endless, never ending slog of work that you have to do, and you're never going to get forgiven. There's no absolution. That's Stop right. asking for forgiveness because that's racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, there's all these different. She criticizes white women for crying and and like hugging and consoling uh, uh, black women who have just had an emotional experience in a training seminar by talking about giving the talk to their boys about being stopped by cops. And she's like, you know, those white women are weaponizing their tears. It's like everything that you do is wrong. And like, the, the, nobody wants to live in that world that she's describing. Like, I well, can't yeah. imagine it, I don't know, Except man. if you're making $728,000 a year. <laughs>
0: she certainly wants to live in that world. Fucking doing
2: seminars. And,
0: and other people, but, but listen, there yeah. are a number of adherents. I, I have been astonished to discover thoughtful friends of mine who picked up this book Mm. and find it not not this book actually the previous book um White Fragility but who will almost certainly buy this book if they haven't pre-ordered it already and they are um they're enthralled with this stuff. They believe that it's the right way to go. And when I express my reservations about these ideas, which is to say I say she's fucking demented. Like this is deranged. It's worse Mm -hmm. than the ranch. It's actively dangerous. And I am slightly embarrassed for you that you find this horrible, tautological, repetitive garbage interesting and compelling. And I can only imagine that you are overcome with emotions and you're not actually thinking this through. Because if you did, you would realize just what a low opinion she has of the Negro broadly (laughs) and what Mm an what an amazingly high opinion she has of white people that even in the most destitute of circumstances it's better to be white in america than to be black it's an obscene ridiculous retrograde idea that is repeated by a lot of people in a bunch of different contexts and it's always wrong it's just not
2: true in fairness fairness to her argument not that it's right but her argument is that uh, all of the systems and the societies all the defaults are for white people it's just um, so the pref- the default preference is for white people the rules are written by white people and so even if you are live in in abject uh, frankly not very believable poverty as she describes herself is she did this while trying to tell on herself forever like indulging in too much of a class-based analysis when she should have understood that even then they were using black people as inferior to the poorest of poor people that she was um that uh that everyone you can't secede from race uh because it surrounds everything that we do and so we're soaking in it and so it's in, it's it's up to us to disrupt those patterns of race, even uh, uh, even if uh, we ourselves are not as rich as Camille Foster. The,
1: the poisonous, I mean, all of it's deeply poisonous, and it's it's kind of like a, a philosophical tract for stupid people, right? Who, who see this stuff and like, "Oh my god, that's white women crying." I mean, amazing. I never even thought of that. Um, but the the problem with it is, of the many problems, again is it presumed so much uh, that you don't have to explain anything, right? Because we live in a culture now where this is talked about with such frequency and such ferocity and such stupidity that when you say all of these institutions, all of this, all of that, there's no point in her book. And I haven't read it, but I'm, I guarantee this is true. And you can tell me if it isn't, uh, cause I did read most of her last book, which I found like, you know, sick inducing, but, um, is that you don't actually have to make the case that any of this stuff is true. It is presumed that it is true, right? So every institution, every this, every that, you know, it's obviously, you start from those assumptions because everyone agrees upon them,
2: right? Right. And no one's and you going don't to have them. to detail. This is the interesting thing um, uh, is that yeah, is no that all, for right? people who are obsessed with the phrase and the concept of systemic racism. Right. They're always saying, like, look, it's not about wearing clans hoods and being and being like intentionally racist. It's benefiting from the system of racism that our BIPOC people, friends, um, uh, understand every day to be on the losing end of. Uh, you have to do something to disrupt that. Well, OK, let's talk about let's talk about the systems <laughs> she doesn't like she has uh, D- she lacks and well because talking <laughs> about the system um is complicated it requires you to understand how systems work yeah. how people's intents and the uh, and the results are not the same thing mm-hmm. um and all kinds of government policy problem but also like the call to action when it's individual when perestroika begins in the home you can sell a motherfucker a book <laughs> you know like the 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 call to action on the individual basis um, is. To do the work, to, to dedicate your life to a lifelong of education, of continuous doing something. Go to the seminar which she might be holding. Buy <laughs> the book which she might have written. I take her at, at like face value, but also like it, like the incentives all like pile back uh, upon her. But the 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 like ten words about of systemic analysis here is incredibly bad. It's like oh the for the size of the if it was just twelve percent larger than the amount of the twenty. Seventeen Republican tax cut could have eradicated poverty in America. That's a lie. That, 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 that's crazy. A, that's, a, <laughs> that's a That's master economist. <laughs> it's like moron. Yeah, yeah, what yeah, yeah. Fuck? <sighs> uh,
0: yeah, maybe that was why you're so poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's she's uh, she's not an economist. But really she's economist. rich as fuck. So
2: rich fuck.
1: Yeah, she used to be. She I mean she knew how to figure it out how to
0: exploit yeah. um yeah. white people. Yeah, she's that's falling cool. out of control. Well can't can't knock the hustle, as Hove says. Yeah. As Hove says. Nope. Um and as, no. as R. Kelly says, you can try me, but I'm not guilty. Um we know that one, Bill Cosby's been released nice. from prison. Um and that's good. It's actually a really good transition mm-hmm. because Jay Z and R. Kelly did that song together, which is um Guilty Until Proven Innocent, I think, is actually what the song is called. And the the hook on there is, Jigga, Kelly, not guilty. And at least, you know, well, Jigga was, in fact, Mm -hmm. guilty, but I think he ended up getting off because he did stab someone, and then there was a trial about that. And R. Kelly, we, I mean, he was guilty Mm -hmm. of a lot of things, and is still in prison. But... He yeah. is in jail. He's, although in he's jail, probably right? calling Bill, Bill Cosby's lawyers today because Bill Cosby um, has managed to have his case, his conviction vacated by a superior court, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. And we may have even talked about it on the podcast where Bill Cosby had an opportunity to get like parole and to get out of jail. And he declined it. He, he said, said no. no, I'm not doing that. Yeah. And what he said he wouldn't do was like some sort of, um, yeah. some sort of program for people who say, you know, I, I, I did a bad thing and I'm, I'm going to not do it anymore. <laughs> sure. And he's like, No, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and, um, apparently he, he knew what was coming. He and his attorneys, um, which is that they had the case thrown out because the, the higher court determined that there were some Fifth Amendment violations. Apparently there was a civil case before involving, mm-hmm the principal victim in the criminal case that he fought. And during that civil case, he gave a deposition in the deposition. He acknowledged explicitly that he had given women these pills, these sedatives in the process of trying to have sex with them. Um, And he at least acknowledges that he gave it to one woman, this woman in particular, and other people I think is what the the specific language in this deposition is. Um, And then this case was sealed up and he only gave that, because the prior district attorney said, well, we're not going to prosecute you for this. Um, but then that was eventually...
1: Who is the person who defended Donald oh, is that Trump right? during the impeachment trial? Right? I didn't know that. I think so, yeah. Huh. Well, same, a new... Yeah, <laughs> he's a crackerjack he's 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 a <laughs> Well, cracker a new district lawyer, attorney showed basically. up and
0: decided, well, we don't care about whatever agreements existed before. We are going to throw that agreement out or ignore it, and we are going to prosecute you for this because hashtag me too... And uh, it was a civil civil rights violation, Mm -hmm. according to this particular superior court. Um, And this was the second second time it had been heard. Yes. The the highest court in the state. Yeah. And um yeah, he is free, he cannot be prosecuted for this again. Could be that there is some prosecution from another state if the statute of limitations hasn't run out on some of these things. But what's really interesting is I realized today that I had not actually looked into the details of a lot of these cases. And it was just today. I was today years old when I discovered that what actually appears to have happened in some of these cases, at least the one that was prosecuted, Was he specifically hands a woman like three pills and says something to the effect of these are your friend. They'll take the edge off and then she takes the pills, which I'm not defending anything that's happened here. I don't know what the hell happened here. I'm just telling you that I just that I just (laughs) took a look at it, but I was kind of astonished to discover (laughs) That she actually looked at these. I don't know why <laughs> she I'm looked
1: at these little these blue pills. pills. Going yeah, to make she looked you at these
0: blue pills and decided to take them. <laughs> and I just want to say, ladies, gentlemen, whoever you are, if they're handing you three blue pills, do not take them. Don't take the pills. They're not some organic thing. Is a sedative. He's not just going to take the edge off. He might take your pants off. And that is not something that you want. It's a bad outcome. And it is astonishing to me that that story appears to repeat itself numerous times with different women. Um, it, it it seems to me that it is inescapably true that Bill Cosby is a dodgy character. Um, and and that he's probably done some bad things and he is, uh, he's out on a, on a technicality. But I think, I think, from my sort of limited appraisal of this thing and given my limited understanding of various legal things because I'm not a lawyer, but it does seem like not a terrible outcome. Like those civil liberties protections like are there and Fifth Amendment rights are there. And when the district attorney like gives What's you a certain sort of assurance in order to get a sworn deposition from you, assuring you that you won't be criminally prosecuted later, like that shouldn't be something that can just go away so that they can score a conviction on you later. Um, And, you know, in that respect, it doesn't seem like a miscarriage of justice. It seems like there are certain protections protections that are in place that benefit us under other circumstances and that in this particular case happened to work to the advantage of Mr. Cosby. And the principal thing that seems to be true here is that the statute of limitations presented some real challenges for the prosecution of this case. She waited more than a decade, it sounds like, to, to actually come forward and whoever you are if something bad has happened to you come forward say something don't wait that can only make the case harder to prosecute later so
2: it's easy for you to say man it's uh, like to go up against someone who's rich and powerful back in the day it was a little bit little bit hard you. well that's, that's uh, why, that's why that the earnest
0: mi- the earnest plea the earnest plea because this is this is hard it's harder later it's harder later
2: Harder later uh the other thing that always comes to mind when this happens because i think people immediately get scrambled and like um oh you know you can just buy your way um out of justice no what you can do is you can buy your way into legal representation mm-hmm. um that poor people generally don't have and so as a result they get right. injustice right. That's a different thing. Like how many times has there been a promise given to people? Oh, just, you know, come over here and confess to this or say this under these That's conditions. Right. You could do that. Um, I mean, false con- false confessions mm-hmm. are such a huge part of bad um, uh, of people being uh, locked up for crimes they didn't commit. It's ast- the numbers are always astonishing. And they're usually moments that are maybe not. a Completely analogous to it, but but it's that, hey, just do this thing right now and it'll solve this problem that you have Right. right now and it won't be a problem later. And then suddenly you're in jail for 20 years and like, what the hell?
1: If Robin D'Angelo thinks that everything is about race and nothing is about class, you might want to look at this and the <laughs> Simpson case and various other cases where people uh-huh. got off because they had very good representation, right? A very, very good representation, particularly in the OJ case. I mean, he didn't have one great lawyer. He had I like know. seven of them, right? And, you know, like from Barry Sheck, who, like, people who forget about it, how talented, he was um, and bringing all the, like the, the, you know, questioning, I think the DNA evidence. And in this case of just like probably things that your local public defender not only would not notice or maybe not uh, ferret out, but would not stick to for so many years, you know, you're, you're gone to the clink and you're done. They moved on to something else, but Bill Cosby's rich and that's it. That's the main thing. He is rich. He's clearly a scumbag. He's clearly not somebody I would let anybody who is a female that I was friends with or even wasn't friends with be in his company alone. Because um, he also thinks of himself as Cliff Huxtable, America's dad, and America's pharmacist, <laughs> apparently, you know, slanging pills and saying, oh, this would be great for you. Get, stay away from this man. And he's a bad man. But to Camille's point is that, you know, the justice system works in the sense that this appears to be an injustice done to a guilty yeah. man. And that is something that a, a, a good legal system uh, has I'm to I'm glad that you finally uh,
2: agreed you know, to my sucks, episode but... one contention that O.J. Simpson was innocent. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh, yeah. it, took, it took five years. It took five years. I got you there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Matt, Matt, uh, we were like, let's do a podcast. Matt's like, don't fit. Got to quit. I'm like, wait, we're doing a podcast. He's like, yeah, but it didn't fit. I'm like, that was like 20 years ago, but it didn't,
0: it didn't fit. Oh my gosh!
1: Bruno, Mario's ugly ass shoes. The best OJ quote of all
0: time. Oh, the best OJ quote. How's it going, Twitter? The best OJ quote of all times is, "I'm not black, I'm OJ." That is the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. You God, love I love that. Um, no, it's <laughs> that informed you. It youth. actually re- it reminds me um, of the the Derek Chauvin um, sentencing, which I believe happened after we recorded last week, and was yeah. was a pretty big deal online. And there was like weeping and gnashing of teeth, and high profile people who are you know advocates for criminal justice reform who were upset. They were outraged that he didn't get you know kind of infinity time, uh, bury him under the jail, that sort of thing. Like. I mean, I... Anybody you want to call up by name? I don't need to. I mean, I think it was pretty much everybody. Okay. Like, like literally everybody. Um, like, heartbroken that this was happening. And the reality is that the sentencing seems to be very much in line with the sort of sentencing that we have seen in contexts like this before. I think it was a pretty average outcome. Um it had a lot to do with the fact that he didn't have, like, prior convictions. Um, but yeah. it's also the case that... Um, the broader point that's being made here that I think you're alluding to, Matt, and which I like, kind of posted about earlier, is that our criminal justice system is, is very punitive, and the disparate outcomes that people experience has everything to do with their ability to navigate that challenging system. And I think a point that's been made here before on the podcast is that even when you're just accused of having committed a crime, like this can become like, an extraordinarily expensive and devastating thing. For you in your life, when you have to fight these allegations, when you're when you're waiting to go to trial, when you're facing, say, a raft of potential charges, even if they can only really prove one of them, the state has more resources than you. They can severely fuck you up. And when the prosecutions become frivolous, when they become political, um, when it's about making a point and putting on a show. This is a very dangerous circumstance. And um, I'm thinking specifically about this young lady who's like 22 years old. It was December of last year, I believe, um, who I just saw today is being um, prosecuted for hate crimes in New York City uh, because she had accused a young man of trying to like steal her phone. and almost certainly the case that like anyone watching has like seen the video of this story. This, this chick was like hysterical in this hotel lobby. And there were, you know, various people at the hotel that kind of got involved because they had to, because she's like screaming and she's charging after this young man who she said had stolen her phone. It turns out he had not stolen her phone. And I don't know much of the rest of the details of this case, but I get, I get My default is to get somewhat uncomfortable when I see, you know, a 22 year old kid who was in a circumstance where there was kind of a difference of perspective on whether or not, you know, something was stolen, on whether or not someone had stolen something. I see video of her getting perp walked by NYPD officers down the stairs of, I guess, city municipal building in this case is probably precinct because I saw like blue paint on the door and you know, they're journalists that are stationed across the street. And I don't know something about that is grotesque and we should want less of that. There ought to be alternatives to this kind of thing. Um, But I don't know.
1: But also in that case, there was, I don't think that she said anything. No, it doesn't appear to be the case at all. They they
0: said, you're only doing this because I'm black. And the response is like, I'm not going to let you get away with my phone. Which I mean, I don't know what you got in your phone, Moynihan, but I imagine it's pretty gross oh, stuff. Oh, if you if you legitimately oh God, thought someone was disgusting. taking your phone, yeah. I imagine you might kind of wig out because we'd be moments I away just, from <laughs> moments so away just from have everybody in the room, room all over the then internet and then figure out who had yeah, the phone later. More dick pics, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but
1: it's it's you know as we live in an increasingly multiracial society, particularly New York City, which is a multiracial mm-hmm. city, there are going to be these interactions between people right. of different races. Right. And the presumption can't always be that that is motivated by hate. If there is evidence of that, fine, then talk about it, humiliate the person, bring it up in the news accounts. And maybe, you know, I don't I'm not a huge fan of of these laws, but, you know, then you prosecute it, you know, as such. But, you know, it it is weird because to your point about the Chauvin thing is that I don't know if that is an appropriate amount of time. I don't I, I, I watched the trial. As it was going, but I didn't watch the sentencing. I haven't, I haven't paid attention since. And if there were people out there upset who are criminal justice reform advocates who are upset that 22 and a half years was too little, just to put it in perspective is that most of the people who are criminal justice reform activists usually would talk to me. And I always came up because I lived in Sweden that what it was like, uh, criminal justice mm-hmm. was like in Sweden, mm-hmm. Norway, Denmark, et cetera, This was the model. And I want to point out to them. That Anders Breivik killed seventy-seven people children mostly injured and in, mostly children, injured injured on three hundred. And he was sentenced to less time. He was sentenced to twenty-one year. That's a maximum sentence in Norway. So if you like the system in Scandinavia, you think that's a more humane system, and then you're barking about Derek Scheven getting, you know, uh not enough time, but more time than the worst mass murderer in Norwegian history. I don't know. I mean you might want to think that you have to be consistent about this stuff. Again, I don't know if it's enough time. I haven't, you know, rendered some judgment on that because I'm not knowledgeable enough about it. But, you know, you kill a guy, it seems like a good amount of time to me. 22 and a half years, it's like, okay, there you go. Shouldn't have killed the guy. But, you know, when, you're, when you are this person who's saying, you know, we have to reform criminal justice, as I think all three of us agree generally in principle, maybe dif- different on the particulars, but that in Europe is a very, very long sentence. It's more than a life sentence in Norway.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. So, more more than, than a life, twenty two years. It's more than a life sentence in Norway. in
1: Norway. And typically in Norway, you you uh, even with a life sentence, you can number one get you can be released. It's never assured that's gonna be twenty one years. And Anders Breivik refused to recognize the legitimacy of the court because he's a fucking psychopath, and uh, that could have potentially shortened the sentence. And also, if you look, um, Vice did a good piece on this. My, my friend Ryan Duffy did in I think two thousand eleven went to a Norwegian prison around the mm-hmm. time of the Breivik thing, and there it's like a country club. It's not even that it's 21 years. It's 21 years in a country club. Now, Breivik has been in solitary confinement and he sued the Norwegian government and then brought the case to the European court, uh, both of which dismissed it. I think a lower court actually um, affirmed it, and then it went up to a higher court in Norway, and they threw it, wa- threw it out. But it, these are like not bad prisons. They're not, this is not an American mm-hmm. prison. Just put it that way
0: it's a you know so yeah. anyway well i promised a bunch of stuff uh, at the front end yeah that we are just really not going to do today no, you don't know i mean no. that was
2: a mistake yeah subscribe to like, the patreon fake, we'll no one wants to hear about the fucking infrastructure <laughs> <music> <laughs> Come on.
0: yeah but there's some interesting confrontations taking place around that i mean bernie sanders is playing a unique role aoc outside the white house protesting the president of the united states who she's supposed to be working with eventually scuttled this deal that he had reached uh, I mean come on to the paper. Come on man. Look, this uh, is interesting stuff.
2: It's compelling. Look. Uh, Camille Camille just tried to come on man. Did you hear that?
0: <laughs> but this is also the reason why oh, I suppose man. readership that's is dying that. um for all of the major major media organizations yeah, cuz the you know? these, the
2: train, these the scandals are wrong. less exciting than Trump's scandals. The check, you yeah. know? <laughs> we gave them the check. They
1: got it. Check. They, they got check. it. In the mail. <laughs> they cashed it. Right right. In the back. That's <laughs> what <laughs> so people want to do. They want to end the podcast with a bunch of weirdos <laughs> whispering at them. Come on, man. is the fifth column. It's,
0: it's the fourth. It's not the third column. It's the fifth column. You know you like it.
1: You know you like it. Come on. You subscribe. It's a couple bucks. It's not a lot of bucks. How many
0: bucks is it?
2: You ever had that many? Places? We had a guy. I answered him, uh, but uh, who sent an email like, "You guys talk a lot about the Patreon on, or you know, uh, somewhat on the regular one, but you don't tell them I how to get there." I suppose there. that's true. But it's not, it's so not, you hard. It. it's, it's
0: it. patreon.com forward slash you dumb the
1: fifth. <laughs> Here's the thing you've got, you've got the name of the podcast, you've got a fucking browser, go to fucking Google, type in the yeah. name of the podcast, and then <laughs> Patreon, <laughs> it'll bring you there. You fucking put yeah. your PayPal or whatever in, Patreon. and then you've got com a lot of episodes. Sign you're up right dummy. there.
0: You can pay us a little bit of money if you feel inclined. We got some great stuff yeah, coming yeah, up yeah. for you some so interviews with some phenomenal authors, yeah. more additional content, and, and some. Something Robin big D'Angelo. that I promised about a week no. ago. there has been the singer LA. D'Angelo I'm still doing some work. Still doing some work. Still doing the the hard work. We're doing the work. Are we doing, are, are we doing? doing the work? work. <laughs> I'm doing the work. Don't I'm ask doing him to the, the work.
2: <laughs> she make <laughs> BIPOC do the work. Stop me hey, from BIPOC. doing the work.
0: Okay. <laughs> Gosh. All right.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: We, we, we. we know of new methods of attack. <laughs> the Trojan Hall
4: we